This is Audible. Becoming Supernatural How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon By New York Times best-selling author Dr. Joe Dispenza Read by Adam Boyce Before you begin, the diagrams referred to in this book have been made available for you to download at www.drjoedispenza.com forward slash bsn Introduction Getting Ready to Become Supernatural I realize that writing this book is a risk for me and my reputation. There are certain people in the world, including some in the scientific community, who might call my work pseudoscience, especially after Becoming Supernatural makes its debut. I used to be overly concerned about those critics' opinions. In the early days of my career, I always wrote with skeptics in mind, trying to make sure that they would approve of my work. On some level, I thought it was important to be accepted by that community. But one day, when I was standing in front of an audience in London, and a woman holding the microphone was telling her story about how she overcame her disease, how she healed herself through the practices I've written about in other books, I had an epiphany. It became very clear that those skeptics and rigid scientists who hold their own beliefs about what is possible aren't going to like me or my work no matter what I do. Once I had that realization, I knew that I'd been wasting a lot of my vital energy. I was no longer interested in convincing that particular culture, especially those studying the normal and natural about human potential. I was totally passionate about anything but normal, and I wanted to study the supernatural. I got very clear that I should give up my futile efforts to convince that community of anything, and instead direct my energy to a whole other part of the population that does believe in possibility and does want to listen to what I have to share. What a relief it was to fully embrace that idea and to let go of any attempt to make a difference in that other world. As I listened to the sweet lady in London, who wasn't a monk or a nun or an academic or a scholar, I knew that in telling her story to the audience, she was helping others see some part of themselves in her. Those hearing her journey might then believe it would be possible for them to accomplish the same. I'm at that point in my life where I am okay with people saying anything about me, and I certainly do have my flaws, but I now know more than ever that I am making a difference in people's lives. I say that with utter humility. I have labored for years in taking complex scientific information and making it simple enough for people to apply to their lives. In fact, in the last four years, my team of researchers, my staff and I have gone through extensive strides to scientifically measure, record and analyze these transformations in people's biology to prove to the world that common people can do the uncommon. This book is about more than just healing, although it includes stories of people who have made significant changes in their health and have actually reversed diseases, along with the tools you'll need to do the same. These accomplishments are becoming quite common in our community of students. The material you are about to read lives outside of convention and is not usually seen or understood by most of the world. 
The content of this book is based on an evolution of teachings and practices that have culminated in our students' ability to delve deeper into the more mystical of these. And of course, I'm hoping it will bridge the world of science with the world of mysticism. I wrote this book to take what I've always thought was possible to the next level of understanding. I wanted to demonstrate to the world that we can create better lives for ourselves, and that we are not linear beings living linear lives, but dimensional beings living dimensional lives. Hopefully reading it will help you understand that you already have all the anatomy, chemistry and physiology you need to become supernatural, sitting latent within you, waiting to be awakened and activated. In the past, I hesitated to talk about this realm of reality because I feared it might divide an audience based on their own personal beliefs. However, I have wanted to write this book for a long time now. Over the years, I have had profoundly rich mystical experiences that have changed me forever. Those inner events have influenced who I am today. I want to introduce you to that world of dimension and show you some of the measurements we took and the studies we did in our advanced workshops around the world. I started collecting data on our students in these workshops because we witnessed significant changes in their health, and I knew they were changing their biology during the meditations in real time. We have thousands and thousands of brain scans that prove those changes were not just imagined in the minds but actually took place in their brains. Several of the students we measured accomplished those changes within four days, the length of our advanced workshops. The scientific teams I've assembled have taken brain scan recordings using quantitative electroencephalogram EEG measurements before and after workshops, as well as real-time measurements during the meditations and practices themselves. I was not only impressed with the changes, but shocked by them. They were that dramatic. The brains of our students function in a more synchronized and coherent fashion after participating in the advanced retreats around the world. This increased order in their nervous systems helps them get very clear about a future they can create, and they are able to hold that intention independent of the conditions in their external environment. And when their brains are working right, they are working right. I will present scientific data that shows how much their brains improved in just a few days, which means you can do the same for your brain. At the end of 2013, something mysterious started occurring. We started seeing brain scan recordings that puzzled the researchers and neuroscientists who came to our events to study my work. The high amount of energy in the brain that we were recording while a student was in certain meditations had never been recorded up until this point, and yet we were seeing these off-the-charts readings again and again. When we interviewed the participants, they reported that their subjective experience during the meditation was very real and mystical, and that this either profoundly changed their view of the world or dramatically improved their health. I knew in those moments that these participants were having transcendental experiences in their inner world of meditation that were more real than anything they had ever experienced in their outer world. And we were capturing those subjective experiences objectively. That has become a new normal for us now, and as a matter of fact, we can often predict when these high amplitudes of energy in the brain will occur based on certain indicators 
and signs that we have seen for years now. In these pages, I want to demystify what it is to have an interdimensional experience, as well as provide the science, biology and chemistry of the organs, systems and neurotransmitters that make this happen. It is my hope that this information will give you a roadmap for how to create such experiences for yourself. We have also recorded amazing changes in heart rate variability, HRV. That's when we know a student is opening their heart and maintaining elevated emotions like gratitude, inspiration, joy, kindness, appreciation and compassion, which cause the heart to beat in a coherent fashion, that is, with rhythm, order and balance. We know that it takes a clear intention, a coherent brain, and an elevated emotion, a coherent heart, to begin to change a person's biology from living in the past to living in the future. That combination of mind and body, of thoughts and feelings, also seems to influence matter. And that's how you create reality. So if you are going to truly believe in a future that you are imagining with all of your heart, let's make sure it's open and fully activated. Why not, through practice and quantitative feedback, get good at doing it and make it a skill? So we partnered with the HeartMath Institute, HMI, a sharp group of researchers based in Boulder Creek, California, who helped us measure the responses of thousands of our participants. It is our desire for our students to develop the ability to regulate an internal state independent of the conditions in their external environment and to know when they are creating heart coherence and when they are not. In other words, when we measure those internal changes, we can tell a person that they created a more balanced pattern in the heart measurement and that they are doing a great job and should keep doing exactly what they are doing. Or we can let them know that they are not making any biological changes and then give them the proper instruction and provide several opportunities to practice getting better at the process. That's what feedback does. It helps us know when we are doing something correctly and when we aren't. When we can change some feeling or thought inside of us, we can see changes outside of us. And when we observe that we did it correctly, we will pay attention to what we did and do it again. That action creates a constructive habit. By demonstrating how others perform such feats, I want to show you how powerful you can be. Our students know how to influence the autonomic nervous system, ANS, the system that maintains health and balance by automatically taking care of all of our bodily functions while we have the free will to live our lives. It is this subconscious system that gives us our health and gives life to our bodies. Once we know how to gain access to this system, we can not only make our health better, but we can also transform unwanted self-limiting behaviors, beliefs and habits into more productive ones. I'll present some of the data we have been collecting for years. We've also taught our students that when they can create heart coherence, their hearts create a measurable magnetic field that projects beyond their body. That magnetic field is an energy and that energy is a frequency, and all frequency carries information. The information carried on that frequency can be an intention or thought that can influence the heart of another person at a different location by moving it into coherence and balance. 
I will show you evidence that a group of people sitting in a room together can influence others sitting at some distance in the same room to go into heart coherence at the exact same time. The evidence clearly shows that we are bound by an invisible field of light and information that influences us and others. Given that, imagine what can happen when we all do this at the same time to change the world. That's exactly what we're up to as a community of individuals who are passionate about making a difference in the future of this earth and the people and other life forms that inhabit it. We have created Project Coherence, in which thousands of people come together at the exact same time on the exact same day to increase the frequency of this planet and of everyone who lives here. Sound impossible? Not at all. More than 23 peer-reviewed articles and more than 50 peace-gathering projects show that such events can lower incidents of violence, war, crime and traffic accidents and at the same time increase economic growth. My wish is to show you the science of how you can contribute to changing the world. We have also measured the energy in the room during our workshops and watched how it changes when you have a community of 550 to 1,500 people raising their energy together and creating heart and brain coherence. We have seen significant changes time and time again. Although the instrument we use to measure this is not approved by the scientific community in the United States, it has been acknowledged in other countries, including Russia. In every event, we're wonderfully surprised by the amount of energy certain groups have been able to demonstrate. We have also assessed the invisible field of vital energy surrounding the body of thousands of students to determine whether they can increase their own light field. After all, everything in our material universe is always emitting light and information, including you. When you are living in survival mode under the burden of the hormones of stress, such as adrenaline, you draw from this invisible field of energy and turn it into chemistry. And as you do so, the field around your body shrinks. We discovered a very advanced piece of equipment that can measure the emission of photons, particles of light, to determine whether a person is building a field of light around them or diminishing their own light field. When more light is emitted, there's more energy and hence more life. When a person has less light and information surrounding their body, they are more matter and thus emit less vital energy. Extensive research proves that the body's cells and various systems communicate not only by the chemical interactions we are familiar with, but also by a field of coherent energy, light, that carries a message, information, that causes the environment within and all around the cell to give instructions to other cells and biological systems. We've measured the amount of vital energy that our students' bodies emit because of the inward changes they've made during our meditations, and I want to show you what changes they can create in only four days or less. Other centers in your body besides the heart are also under the control of the autonomic nervous system. I call them energy centers. Each has its own frequency its own intent or consciousness, its own glands, its own hormones, its own chemistry, its own individual little brain, and so its own unique mind. You can influence these centers to function in a more balanced and integrated fashion, but to do that, 
you must first learn how to change your brainwaves so you can enter this subconscious operating system. In fact, moving from beta brainwaves, where the thinking brain is constantly analyzing and putting much attention on the outer world, to alpha brainwaves, which indicates you're calmly placing more attention on the inner world, is key. By consciously slowing your brainwaves down, you can more readily program the autonomic nervous system. Students who have done my various meditation practices over the years have learned how to change their brainwaves as well as sharpen the type of focus it takes to be present long enough to produce measurable effects. We've discovered an instrument that can measure those changes and again, I'll show you some of the research. We've also measured several different biological markers related to changing gene expression, a process known as making epigenetic changes. In this book you will learn that you are not in fact beholden to your genes and that gene expression is changeable once you begin to think, act and feel differently. During our events students leave their familiar lives for four to five days to instead spend time in an environment that doesn't remind them of who they think they are. In doing so they separate themselves from the people they know, the things they own, the automatic behaviors they demonstrate in their daily lives, and the places they routinely go, and they begin to change their inner states through four different types of meditations. Walking, sitting, standing, and lying down. And through each one of these, they learn to become someone else. We know it's true because our studies show significant changes in our students' gene expression and they've then reported significant changes in their health. Once we can show someone measurable results proving they truly have altered neurotransmitters, hormones, genes, proteins and enzymes, through thought alone, they can better justify their efforts and prove to themselves that they really are transforming. As I share these ideas with you in this book, walking you through the process, and explaining the science behind the work that we're doing and why, you'll be learning a lot of fairly detailed information. But don't worry, I will review certain key concepts in different chapters. I do this intentionally to remind you of what you have already learned, so we can build a bigger model of understanding in that moment. At times, the material I present may be challenging. Because I've taught this material to audiences for years, I know it can be a lot. I'll be reviewing and reminding you of what you've learned, so you do not have to go back in the book to search for the information, although you can always review the earlier chapters if you feel you need to. Of course, all of this information will prime you for your own personal transformation. So the better you can wrap your mind around these concepts, the more easily you can surrender to the meditations at the end of most of the chapters using them as tools to have your own personal experience. In Chapter 1, I tell three stories that will give you a basic understanding of what it means to become supernatural. In the first story, you'll meet a woman named Anna, who developed several serious health conditions because of a trauma that kept her anchored to the past. The emotions of stress triggered her genes, and the corresponding hormones created some very challenging health conditions for her. It is a very tough tale, 
I intentionally chose this story and included it in all its details because I wanted to demonstrate to you that no matter how bad things can get, you have the power to change them, just as this amazing woman did. She applied many of the meditations in this book to modify her personality and heal herself. To me, she is a living example of truth. But she's not the only one who has kept overcoming herself on a daily basis until she became someone else. She joins a whole student body of participants who have done the same, and if they can do it, so can you. I also share two of my own personal stories here, experiences that have changed me at a very deep level. This book is as much about the mystical as it is about healing and creating new opportunities in our lives. I share these stories because I want to prime you for what is possible when we leave this realm of space-time, the Newtonian world we learned about in high school science class, and activate our pineal gland so we can move into the realm of time-space, the quantum world. Many of our students have had similar mystical and interdimensional experiences which seemed as real as this material reality. Because the second half of the book delves into the physics, neuroscience, neuroendocrinology, and even genetics of how this happens, I hope these stories will pique your curiosity, acting as teasers to open your mind to what's possible. There's a future you, a you who already exists in the eternal present moment, who is actually calling himself or herself to the more familiar you who is reading this book. And that future you is more loving, more evolved, more conscious, more present, more kind, more exuberant, more mindful, more willful, more connected, more supernatural, and more whole. That is who is waiting for you to change your energy to match his or her energy on a daily basis so you can find that future you who actually exists in the eternal now. Chapter 2 covers one of my favorite topics. I wrote it so you could fully comprehend what it means to be in the present moment. Since all potentials in the fifth dimension, known as the quantum, or the unified field, exist in the eternal present moment, the only way you can create a new life, heal your body, or change your predictable future is to get beyond yourself. This elegant moment, which we have witnessed in thousands of brain scans, arrives when a person finally surrenders the memory of themselves for something greater. So many people spend the majority of their lives unconsciously choosing to live by the same routines on a regular basis, or they automatically romance their past, feeling the same way every day. As a result, they program their brain and body to be in a predictable future or a familiar past, never living in the present moment. It takes practice to get there, but it's always worth the effort. Finally finding the sweet spot of the generous present moment is going to require you to exercise a will that is greater than any of your automatic programs, but I'll encourage you every step of the way. The chapter starts off with a basic review of some scientific principles so that we can establish a common terminology to develop models of understanding throughout the book. I'm going to make it pretty simple talking about brain function, that is, the mind, nerve cells and networks, different parts of the nervous system, chemicals, emotions and stress, brain waves, attention and energy, and a few other subjects is necessary to get you to where you want to go. 
I have to establish the language to explain why we are doing what we are doing before I teach you how to do it in the meditations that appear throughout the book. If you want more explicit, in-depth information, I invite you to read any of my previous books, including Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself and You Are the Placebo. Chapter 3 is your introduction to the quantum world, the fifth dimension. I want you to understand that there is an invisible field of energy and information that exists beyond this three-dimensional realm of space and time, and that we have access to it. In fact, once you are in the present moment and you've entered this realm, which exists beyond your senses, you are now ready to create your intended reality. When you can take all your attention off your body, the people in your life, the objects you own, the places you go, and even time itself, you will literally forget about your identity that has been formed by living as a body in this space and time. It is in this moment that you, as pure consciousness, enter the realm called the quantum field, which exists beyond this space and time. You can't enter this immaterial place with your problems, your name, your schedules and routines, your pain or your emotions. You can't enter as some body. You must enter as nobody. In fact, once you know how to move your awareness from the known, the material physical world, to the unknown, the immaterial world of possibility, and you become comfortable there, you can change your energy to match the frequency of any potential in the quantum field that already exists there. Spoiler alert! Actually, all potential futures exist there so you can create whatever you want. When a vibrational match occurs between your energy and the energy of that potential you select in the unified field, you will draw that experience to you. I'll show you how it all works. Chapter 3 ends with a brief description of a meditation I have developed to help give you an actual experience of the quantum. Each of the teaching chapters from this point on will also end with a brief description of a different meditation. If you want to follow along as I guide you, you can purchase a CD or download an audio recording from any of these meditations from my website, drjoedispenza.com. Of course, you can also opt to try any of the meditations in this book on your own without listening to a recording. For this purpose, I have made free detailed descriptions available, giving the steps of each of these meditations on my website at drjoedispenza.com forward slash BSN meditations. If you are meditating on your own, I recommend you listen to music while you do so. The best type of music is without vocals, and I prefer slow and trancing. It's best to use music that stops you from thinking and that doesn't evoke past memories. You'll find a suggested music list on my website mentioned earlier. In Chapter 4, I introduce you to one of the most popular meditations in our community. It's called the Blessing of the Energy Centers. Each center is under the control of the autonomic nervous system. I will give you the science of how you can program these centers for health and the greatest good during a meditation. If you have been doing my introductory level meditations where you have been placing your attention on different parts of your body and the space around your body, I want you to know that all of your training was for this meditation. Practicing that, 
has helped you sharpen your skill to focus your attention and change your brainwaves so you can enter the operating system of the autonomic nervous system. Once you are there, you can program the operating system with the right orders to heal you, balance your health, and improve your energy and your life. In Chapter 5, I introduce you to a breath that we use at the start of many of our meditations. This breath enables you to change your energy, run an electrical current through your body, and create a more powerful electromagnetic field around you. As I will explain, most people's energy is stored in the body because they have conditioned their body to become the mind from years of thinking, acting, and feeling the same way. It is this process, relating to living in survival mode, that causes most of the creative energy to be rooted in the body. Therefore, we must have a way to pull that energy out of the body and deliver it back to the brain, where it will be available for a higher purpose than mere survival. I'll give you the physiology of the breath so you can put more intention behind it when you begin to free yourself from the past. Once you start to liberate all that energy back into the brain, then you will learn how to recondition your body to a new mind. I'm going to show you how to teach your body emotionally how to live in the future present reality instead of the past present reality where we spend most of our time. Science tells us that the environment signals the gene. Since emotions are the chemical end products of experiences in our environment, when you embrace the elevated emotions in your meditations, you will not only raise your body's energy, but you will also start to signal new genes in new ways, ahead of the environment. There's nothing like a good story or two. In Chapter 6, I give you a few examples of students who applied themselves to the meditations in the previous chapters. These case histories should serve as teaching tools to help you fully understand the material I have presented so far. Most of the people you will read about are no different from you. They're common people who have done the uncommon. Another reason I share these stories is so you can personally relate to these people. Once you have the thought, if they can do it, so can I, you will naturally believe in yourself more. I always tell our community, when you choose to prove to yourself how powerful you really are, you have no idea who you will be helping in the future. These people are proof that it's possible for you. In Chapter 7, I introduce what it means to create heart coherence. Like brain coherence, the heart functions in the same organized way when we are truly present, when we can sustain elevated emotional states, and when we feel safe enough to fully open up to possibility. The brain thinks, but the heart knows. This is the center of oneness, wholeness, and unity consciousness. It is where opposites meet, representing the union of polarities. Think of this center as your connection to the unified field. When it is activated, you go from selfish states to selfless states. When you can maintain internal states independent of conditions in your external environment, you are mastering your environment. It takes practice to get good at keeping your heart open, and if you do, it will keep beating longer. Chapter 8 shares one of the other favorite activities we do at our advanced workshops. 
combining a kaleidoscope with videos called mind movies that our students make of their future. We use the kaleidoscope to induce a trance because when you're in trance, you are more suggestible to information. Suggestibility is your ability to accept, believe, and surrender to information without any analysis. If you do this properly, it is indeed possible to program your subconscious mind. So it makes sense that when you use the kaleidoscope to change your brainwaves, with your eyes open instead of closed in a meditation, you can lower the volume of the analytical mind to open the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. And when you follow that with a mind movie, with scenes of yourself or pictures of what the future you want looks like, you program yourself into that new future. So many of our students have created amazing new lives and opportunities when they took the time to make their mind movie and then watch it with the kaleidoscope. Some students are already on their third mind movie because everything in their first two has already happened. In Chapter 9, I introduce the walking meditation. This meditation incorporates both standing and walking. I find this practice such a valuable tool in helping us literally walk into our future. Many times we can have an amazing seated meditation and connect to something bigger than us, but when we open our eyes and come back to our senses, we go unconscious again and return to a series of unconscious programs, emotional reactions and automatic attitudes. I developed this meditation because I want our community to be able to embody the energy of their future and do it with their eyes open as well as closed. In time, as you practice this, you might naturally begin to think like a wealthy person, act like an unlimited being, and feel an expansive joy for existence because you installed the circuits and conditioned your body to become that person. Chapter 10 shares another set of case studies to engage your level of understanding with allegory. These fascinating stories will help you connect the dots so you can hear the information from another angle and read about people who have experienced it firsthand. I hope they will inspire you to do your practice with more conviction, certainty and trust so that you can experience the truth for yourself. Chapter 11 opens your mind to what's possible in the interdimensional world beyond the senses. In quiet moments... I often find my mind drifting to the mystical, one of my favorite topics. I love those transcendental experiences that are so lucid and real that I can never go back to business as usual because I know too much. During those inner events, the level of awareness and energy is so profound that when I come back to my senses and my personality, I often naturally think to myself, I got this all wrong. The this I'm referring to is the way reality really is, not how I've been conditioned to perceive it to be. In this chapter, I take you on a journey from this realm of space-time, where space is eternal and we experience time as we move through space, to the realm of time-space, where time is eternal and we experience space, or spaces or various dimensions, as we move through time. It is going to challenge your very understanding of the nature of reality. All I can say is that if you hang in there, you will get it. 
It might take you a few readings to fully understand it, but as you study the material and contemplate it, your contemplation builds the circuits in your brain in preparation for the experience. Once you are beyond your associations to this material world and you are in the unified field, chock full of infinite possibilities, biological systems exist for taking that energy that's beyond the vibration of matter and turning it into imagery in the brain. That's where the pineal gland comes in, the subject of chapter 12. Think of your pineal gland, a tiny gland perched in the central back area of your brain, as an antenna that can transduce frequencies and information and turn them into vivid imagery. When you activate your pineal gland, you're going to have a full-on sensory experience without your senses. That eternal event will be more real to you in your mind while your eyes were closed than any past external experience you've ever had. In other words, in order to lose yourself fully in the inward experience, it has to be so real that you are there. When this happens, this little gland transmutes melatonin into some very powerful metabolites that cause you to have that type of experience. We will study the properties of this gland and then you will learn how to activate it. Chapter 13 introduces you to one of our most recent endeavors, Project Coherence. When we witnessed the measurements of so many of our students going into heart coherence at the exact same time on the exact same day during the exact same meditation, we knew that they were affecting each other non-locally, energetically as opposed to physically. The energy they were emitting in the form of elevated emotions carried their intention that the greatest good happened to everyone gathered in the room. Imagine a large body of people all elevating their energy and then placing the intention on that energy that lives be enriched, bodies be healed, dreams come true, futures be realized and the mystical become common in our lives. When we saw how our students were able to open the hearts of others, we knew it was time to start doing global meditations to help change the world. Thousands and thousands of people from all over the world have joined in and participated in changing and healing this planet and the people on it. After all, are we doing this work to make the world a better place? I'll give you the science of how this all works, and I do mean science. Enough peer-reviewed studies on the power of peace-gathering projects have been published to prove it works. So instead of just studying history, why not make history? The book finishes with chapter 14, which shares some pretty wild case studies of some of the mind-blowing mystical experiences people have had doing this work. Once again, I share them so you can see that even the most mystical adventures can be yours if you work at it. So are you ready to become supernatural? Chapter 1. Opening the Door to the Supernatural As spring was ending and the first glimpse of summer was approaching, what first appeared to be a typical Sunday afternoon in June 2007 turned out to be anything but typical for Anna Willems. The French doors from the living room to the garden were open wide, 
and the thin white curtains danced lightly in the breeze as scents from the garden floated inside. Streams of sunlight shone brightly all around Anna as she lounged comfortably. A chorus of birds chirped and trilled outside, and Anna could hear the distant melody of children's laughter and playful splashing coming from a neighbor's swimming pool. Anna's twelve-year-old son reclined on the sofa, reading a book, and she could hear her eleven-year-old daughter in the room directly above her, singing to herself as she played. A psychotherapist, Anna worked as a manager and board member for a major psychiatric institution in Amsterdam, whose profits totaled more than 10 million euros annually. She often caught up on professional reading on the weekends, and on this day she was sitting in a red leather chair reading a journal article. Little did Anna know that what looked like the perfect world to anyone peering into her living room that day would become a nightmare within minutes. Anna felt a bit distracted, noticing that her attention wasn't fully engaged in the material she was attempting to study. She set her papers down and paused, suddenly wondering again where her husband had gone. He had left the house early that morning while she was taking a shower. Without saying where he was headed, he had simply disappeared. The children had told her that their father had said goodbye, giving each of them a big hug before he left. She tried to reach him on his cell phone many times, but he hadn't returned her calls. She tried one more time. No answer. Something definitely felt odd. At 3.30 p.m. the doorbell rang, and when Anna opened the front door she found two police officers standing outside. "'Are you Mrs. Willems?' one of them asked. When she confirmed she was indeed Mrs. Willems, the officers asked if they could come in and talk to her. Concerned and a bit confused, she complied. Then they delivered the news. Earlier that morning her husband had jumped off one of the tallest buildings in the centre of the city. Not surprisingly, the fall was fatal. Anna and her two children sat in shock and disbelief. Anna's breath momentarily stopped, and as she then gasped for air, she started to shake uncontrollably. The moment seemed frozen in time. While her children sat paralyzed in shock, Anna tried to hide her pain and stress for their sakes. An intense pain suddenly shot through her head, and she simultaneously felt a deep, hollow ache in her gut. Her neck and shoulders instantly stiffened as her mind frenetically raced from thought to thought. The hormones of stress had overtaken her. Anna was now in survival mode. How Stress Hormones Take Over From a scientific standpoint, living in stress is living in survival. When we perceive a stressful circumstance that threatens us in some way, one for which we cannot predict or control the outcome, a primitive nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system turns on and the body mobilizes an enormous amount of energy in response to the stressor. Physiologically, the body is automatically tapping into the resources it will need to deal with the current danger. The pupils dilate so we can see better. The heart rate and respiratory rate increase so we can run, fight or hide. More glucose is released into the bloodstream to make more energy available to our cells. And our blood flow is shunted to the extremities and away from our internal organs 
so we can move quickly if we need to. The immune system initially dials up and then dials down as adrenaline and cortisol flood the muscles, providing a rush of energy to either escape or fend off the stressor. Circulation moves out of our rational forebrain and is instead relayed to our hindbrain, so we have less capacity to think creatively and instead rely more on our instinct to instantly react. In Anna's case, the stressful news of her husband's suicide threw her brain and body into just such a state of survival. In the short term, all organisms can tolerate adverse conditions by fighting, hiding or fleeing from an impending stressor. All of us are built for dealing with short-term bursts of stress. When the event is over, the body normally returns to balance within hours, increasing its energy levels and restoring its vital resources. But when the stress doesn't end within hours, the body never returns to balance. In truth, no organism in nature can endure living in emergency mode for extended periods of time. Because of our large brains, human beings are capable of thinking about their problems, reliving past events, or even forecasting future worst-case situations, and thus turning on the cascade of stress chemicals by thought alone. We can knock our brains and bodies out of normal physiology just by thinking about an all-too-familiar past or trying to control an unpredictable future. Every day, Anna relived that event over and over in her mind. What she didn't realize was that her body did not know the difference between the original event that created the stress response and the memory of the event, which created the same emotions as the real-life experience all over again. Anna was producing the same chemistry in her brain and body as if the event were actually happening again and again. Subsequently, her brain was continuously wiring the event into her memory bank, and her body was emotionally experiencing the same chemicals from the past at least a hundred times each day. By repeatedly recalling the experience, she was unintentionally anchoring her brain and body to the past. Emotions are the chemical consequences or feedback of past experiences. As our senses record incoming information from the environment, clusters of neurons organize into networks. When they freeze into a pattern, the brain makes a chemical that is then sent throughout the body. That chemical is called an emotion. We remember events better when we can remember how they feel. The stronger the emotional quotient from any event, either good or bad, the stronger the change in our internal chemistry. When we notice a significant change inside of us, the brain pays attention to whoever or whatever is causing the change outside of us, and it takes a snapshot of the outer experience. That's called a memory. Therefore, the memory of an event can become branded neurologically in the brain, and that scene becomes frozen in time in our grey matter, just as it did for Anna. The combination of various people or objects at a particular time and place from that stressful experience is etched into our neural architecture as a holographic image. That's how we create a long-term memory. Therefore, the experience becomes imprinted in the neural circuitry, and the emotion is stored in the body, and that's how our past becomes our biology. In other words, when we experience a traumatic event, 
we tend to think neurologically within the circuitry of that experience, and we tend to feel chemically within the boundaries of the emotions from that event. So our entire state of being, how we think and how we feel, becomes biologically stuck in the past. As you can imagine, Anna was feeling a rush of negative emotions, tremendous sadness, pain, victimization, grief, guilt, shame, despair, anger, hatred, frustration, resentment, shock, fear, anxiety, worry, overwhelm, anguish, hopelessness, powerlessness, isolation, loneliness, disbelief, and betrayal. And none of those emotions dissipated quickly. As Anna analyzed her life within the emotions of the past, she kept suffering more and more. Because she couldn't think greater than how she constantly felt, and since emotions are a record of the past, she was thinking in the past, and every day she felt worse. As a psychotherapist, she could rationally and intellectually understand what was happening to her, but all her insights couldn't get beyond her suffering. People in her life started treating her as the person who had lost her husband, and that became her new identity. She associated her memories and feelings with the reason she was in her present state. When anyone asked her why she felt so bad, she told the story of the suicide, each time reliving the pain, anguish, and suffering over again. All along, Anna kept firing the same circuits in her brain and reproducing the same emotions, conditioning her brain and body further into the past. Every day, she was thinking, acting, and feeling as if the past was still alive. And since how we think, how we act, and how we feel is our personality, Anna's personality was completely created by the past. From a biological standpoint, in repeatedly telling the narrative of her husband's suicide, Anna literally couldn't get beyond what had happened. A downward spiral begins. Anna could no longer work and had to take leave of absence. During that time, she found out that her husband, although a successful lawyer, had made a mess of their personal finances. She would have to pay off significant debts that she had previously been unaware of, and she didn't have the money to even begin. Not surprisingly, even more emotional, psychological, and mental stress began to add up. Anna's mind went in circles, constantly flooded with questions. How will I take care of our children? How will all of us deal with this trauma in our future, and how will it affect our lives? Why did my husband leave without saying goodbye to me? How could I not know he was so unhappy? Did I fail as a wife? How could he leave me with two young children, and how will I manage to raise them by myself? Then judgments crept into her thoughts. He shouldn't have committed suicide and left me in this financial mess. What a coward! How dare he leave his children without a father? He didn't even write a message for the children and me. I hate him for not even leaving a note. What a jerk to leave me and make me raise these kids alone. Did he have any idea what this might do to us? All of these thoughts carried a strong emotional charge further affecting her body. 
Nine months later, on March 21, 2008, Anna woke up paralyzed from the waist down. Within hours, she was lying in a hospital bed, a wheelchair beside her, diagnosed with neuritis, inflammation of the peripheral nervous system. After several tests, the doctors could not find anything structural as the cause of the problem, so they told Anna that she must have an autoimmune condition. Her immune system was attacking the nervous system in her lower spine, breaking down the protective layer that coats the nerves and causing paralysis in both of her legs. She could not hold her urine, had difficulty controlling her bowels, and had no feeling or motor control in her legs and feet. When the fight-or-flight nervous system is switched on and stays on because of chronic stress, the body utilizes all its energy reserves to deal with the constant threat it perceives from the outer environment. Therefore, the body has no energy left in its inner environment for growth and repair, compromising the immune system. So because of her repeated inner conflict, Anna's immune system was attacking her body. She had finally physically manifested the pain and suffering she'd emotionally experiencing in her mind. In short, Anna could not move her body because she wasn't moving forward in her life. She was stuck in her past. For the next six weeks, Anna's doctors treated her with huge doses of intravenous dexamethasone and other corticosteroids to reduce inflammation. Because of the added stress and the types of drugs she was taking, which can further weaken the immune system, she also developed an aggressive bacterial infection for which her doctors gave her huge doses of antibiotics. After two months, Anna was released from the hospital and had to use a walker and crutches to get around. She still could not feel her left leg and found standing very difficult. She couldn't walk properly. Although she could hold her bowels a bit better, she still couldn't control her urine. As you can imagine, this new situation was adding to Anna's already high stress levels. She had lost her husband to suicide. She could not work very much to support herself and her children. She was in serious financial crisis, and she had been living in a hospital paralyzed for more than two months. Her mother had to move in to help. Anna was an emotional, mental, and physical wreck. And although she had the best doctors and the latest medications from a reputable hospital, she was not getting any better. By 2009, two years after the death of her husband, she was diagnosed with clinical depression. So she started taking even more medication. Consequently, Anna's mood swung widely from anger to grief to pain to suffering to hopelessness to frustration to fear to hatred. Because those emotions influenced her actions, her behavior became somewhat irrational. At first, she fought with almost everybody around her except her children, but then she started to have conflicts with her youngest daughter. The Dark Night of the Soul In the meantime, many more physical problems started showing up and Anna's journey became even more painful. The mucous membranes in her mouth started to develop large ulcerations that spread into her upper esophagus as the result of another autoimmune disease called erosive lichen planus. To treat it, she had to use corticosteroid ointments in her mouth in addition to more pills. These new medications caused Anna's saliva production to stop. 
She couldn't eat solid foods, so she lost her appetite. Anna was living with all three types of stress, physical, chemical, and emotional, at the same time. In 2010, Anna found herself in a dysfunctional relationship with a man who traumatized her and her children with verbal abuse, power games, and constant threats. She lost all her money, her job, and her feeling of safety. When she lost her house, she had to move in with her abusive boyfriend. Stress levels continued climbing. Her ulcerations started to spread to other mucous membranes, including her vagina, her anus, and further down her esophagus. Her immune system had totally collapsed, and now she was experiencing several different skin conditions, food allergies, and weight problems. Then she started having problems swallowing and developing heartburn, for which the doctors prescribed still more medications. Anna started a small psychotherapy practice at home in October. She could only handle seeing clients for two sessions a day in the morning after her children went to school three days a week. In the afternoon, she was so tired and sick that she would lie in bed until her children returned from school. She tried to be there for them as much as possible, but she had no energy and didn't feel well enough to leave the house. Anna hardly saw anyone. She had no social life. All the circumstances in her body and in her life constantly reminded her how bad things were. She automatically reacted to everyone and everything. Her thinking was chaotic and she could not concentrate. She had no vitality or energy to live anymore. Often when she exerted herself, her heart rate exceeded 200 beats per minute. She found herself sweating and gasping for breath all the time and she felt an enormous pain in her chest on a regular basis. Anna was passing through her darkest night of the soul. Suddenly, she understood why her husband had taken his life. She wasn't sure she could go on any more and started thinking of committing suicide herself. She thought, it can't get any worse than this. And then it did. In January 2011, Anna's medical team found a tumor near the entrance of her stomach and diagnosed her with esophageal cancer. Of course, this news severely increased Anna's stress levels. The doctors suggested a rigorous course of chemotherapy. No one asked about her emotional and mental stress. They only treated the physical symptoms. But Anna's stress response was fully turned on, and it couldn't turn off. It's amazing how this can happen to so many people. Because of a shock or trauma in their lives, they never get beyond those corresponding emotions, and their health and their lives break down. If an addiction is something that you think you can't stop, then objectively, it looks as though people like Anna become addicted to the very emotions of stress that are making them sick. The rush of adrenaline and the rest of the stress hormones arouses their brain and body, providing a rush of energy. In time, they become addicted to the rush of that chemistry, and then they use the people and conditions in their lives to reaffirm their addiction to the emotion, just to keep feeling that heightened state. Anna was using her stressful conditions to recreate that rush of energy, and without realizing it, she became emotionally addicted to a life she hated. 
Science tells us that such chronic long-term stress pushes the genetic buttons that cause disease. So if Anna was turning the stress response on by thinking about her problems and her past, her thoughts were making her sick. And since stress hormones are so powerful, she had become addicted to her own thoughts that were making her feel so bad. Anna agreed to start chemotherapy, but after her first session she had an emotional and mental breakdown. One afternoon after her kids went to school, Anna collapsed on the floor, crying. She had finally reached the bottom. It occurred to her that if she continued this way, she would not survive for long, and she would leave her children alone without either parent. She started to pray for help. She knew in her heart that something needed to change. In utter sincerity and surrender, she asked for guidance, support, and a way out, promising that if her prayers were answered, she would be thankful and grateful every day for the rest of her life, and she would help others to do the same. Anna's Turning Point The choice to change became Anna's quest. She first decided to stop all the treatments and all the medications for her various physical illnesses, although she continued to take her antidepressants. She didn't tell the doctors and nurses that she was not coming back for treatment. She simply did not show up anymore. No one ever called her to ask why. Only her family doctor contacted Anna to express concern. On that cold winter's day in February 2011, when Anna was on the floor crying for help, she made a choice with a firm intention to change herself and her life, and the amplitude of that decision carried a level of energy that caused her body to respond to her mind. It was that decision to change that gave her the strength to rent a house for herself and her children and to move away from the negative relationship she was in. It was as if that moment redefined her. She knew she had to start all over. When I first saw Anna, it was one month later. One of the few friends she had left had reserved a seat for Anna at a Friday evening talk that I was giving. Her friend made Anna an offer. If she liked the evening lecture, she could stay for a full two-day weekend workshop. Anna agreed to go. The first time I saw her, she was sitting in a packed conference room on the left side on the outer aisle, her crutches leaning against the wall near where she sat. As usual, I was carrying on that night about how our thoughts and feelings affect our bodies and our lives. I lectured about how stress chemicals can create disease. I touched on neuroplasticity, psychoneuroimmunology, epigenetics, neuroendocrinology, and even quantum physics. I will go into more detail on all of these later in this book, but for now it's enough to know that the latest research in these branches of science point to the power of possibility. That night, filled with inspiration, Anna thought, If I created the life I have now, including my paralysis, my depression, my weakened immune system, my ulcerations, and even my cancer, maybe 
I can uncreate everything with the same passion I created it with. And with that potent new understanding, Anna decided to heal herself. Immediately after her first weekend workshop, she started meditating twice a day. Of course, sitting and doing meditations was difficult at the beginning. She had a lot of doubt to overcome, and some days she did not feel mentally or physically well. But she did her meditations anyway. She also had a lot of fear. When her family doctor called to check up on her because she had stopped her treatments and medications, he told Anna that she was being naive and stupid, and that she would get worse and die soon. Imagine the memory of an authority figure telling you that. Even so, Anna did her meditations every day and began to move beyond her fears. She was often consumed with financial burdens, her children's needs and various physical limitations, yet she never used those conditions as an excuse to not do her inner work. She even attended four more of my workshops during that year. By going within and changing her unconscious thoughts, automatic habits and reflexive emotional states, which had become hardwired in her brain and emotionally conditioned in her body, Anna was now more committed to believing in a new future than believing in her same familiar past. She used her meditations, combining a clear intention with an elevated emotion, to change her state of being from biologically living in the same past to living in a new future. Every day Anna was unwilling to get up from her meditations as the same person who sat down. She decided that she wouldn't finish until her whole state of being was in love with life. To the materialist, who defines reality with the senses, of course, Anna had no tangible reason to be in love with life. She was a depressed, widowed, single parent who was in financial debt and had no real job. She had cancer and suffered from paralysis and ulcerations in her mucous membranes. And she was in a poor living situation with no partner or significant other and no energy to tend to her children. But in the meditations, Anna learned that she could teach her body emotionally what her future would feel like ahead of the actual experience. Her body as the unconscious mind did not know the difference between the real event and the one she was imagining and emotionally embracing. She also knew through her understanding of epigenetics that the elevated emotions of love, joy, gratitude, inspiration, compassion and freedom could signal new genes to make healthy proteins affecting her body's structure and function. She fully understood that if the stress chemicals that had been coursing through her body had been turning on unhealthy genes, then by fully embracing those elevated emotions with a passion greater than the stressful emotions, she could turn on new genes and change her health. For a year, her health didn't change very much. But she kept doing her meditations. In fact, she did all the meditations I designed for students. She knew it had taken several years to create her current health conditions, and so it would take some time to recreate something new. So she kept doing the work, striving to become so conscious of her unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that she would not let anything she did not want to experience slip by her awareness. 
After that first year, Anna noticed that she was slowly starting to get better mentally and emotionally. Anna was breaking the habit of being herself, inventing a whole new self instead. Anna knew from attending my workshops that she had to move her autonomic nervous system back into balance because the ANS controls all the automatic functions that happen beyond the brain's conscious awareness. Digestion, absorption, blood sugar levels, body temperature, hormonal secretions, heart rate, and so on. The only way she could slip into the operating system and affect the ANS was to change her internal state on a regular basis. So first Anna began each meditation with the blessing of the energy centers. These specific areas of the body are under the control of the ANS. As I mentioned in the introduction, each center has its own energy or frequency, which emits specific information or has its own consciousness, its own glands, its own hormones, its own chemistry, its own individual little mini-brain, and therefore its own mind. Each center is influenced by the subconscious brain sitting under our conscious thinking brain. Anna learned how to change her brainwaves so she could enter the operating system of the ANS, located in the midbrain, and reprogram each center to work in a more harmonious manner. Every day with focus and passion, she rested her attention in each area of her body, as well as the space around each center, blessing it for greater health and the greater good. Slowly but surely, she began to influence her health by reprogramming her autonomic nervous system back to balance. Anna also learned a specific breathing technique I teach in our work to liberate all the emotional energy that is stored in the body when we keep thinking and feeling the same way. By constantly thinking the same thoughts, Anna had been creating the same feelings, and then by feeling those familiar emotions, she would think more of the same corresponding thoughts. She learned that the emotions of the past were stored in her body, but she could use this breathing technique to liberate that stored energy and free herself from her past. So every day, with a level of intensity that was greater than her addiction to past emotions, she practiced the breath and got better and better at doing it. After she learned to move that stored energy in her body, she learned how to recondition her body to a new mind by embracing the heart-centered emotions of her future before her future unfolded. Since Anna also studied the model of epigenetics I teach in our workshops and lectures, she learned that genes don't create disease. Instead, the environment signals the gene to create disease. Anna understood that if her emotions were the chemical consequences of experiences in her environment, and if she lived every day by the same emotions from her past, she was selecting and instructing the same genes that might be causing her poor health conditions. If she could instead embody the emotions of her future life by embracing those emotions before the experience actually happened, she could change her genetic expression and actually change her body to be biologically aligned with her new future. Anna did an additional meditation that involved resting her attention in the center of her chest, activating the ANS with those elevated states to create and maintain a very efficient type of heart rate we called a coherent heart rate, which I'll explain 
in detail later in the book, for extended periods of time. She learned that when she felt resentment, impatience, frustration, anger and hatred, those states induced the stress response and caused the heart to be incoherently and out of order. Anna learned in my workshops that once she could sustain this new heart-centered state, just as she had gotten used to feeling all of those negative emotions on a regular basis, in time, she could feel these new emotions more fully and deeply. Of course, it took quite a bit of effort to trade anger, fear, depression and resentment for joy, love, gratitude and freedom, but Anna never gave up. She knew that those elevated emotions would release more than a thousand different chemicals that would repair and restore her body, and she went for it. Anna then practiced a walking meditation I designed in which she walked as her new self every day. Instead of sitting down and meditating with her eyes closed, she started these meditations standing up with her eyes closed. While standing, she got into the meditative state that she knew would change her state of being, and then while still in that state, she opened her eyes, staying in a meditative state, and walked as her future self. By doing so, she was embodying a new habit of thinking, acting, and feeling on a regular basis. What she was creating would soon become her new personality. She never wanted to go unconscious again and return to her old self. Because of all this work, Anna could see that her thought patterns had changed. She was no longer firing the same circuits in her brain in the same way, so those circuits stopped wiring together and started pruning apart. As a result, she stopped thinking in the same old ways. Emotionally, she began to feel glimpses of gratitude and pleasure for the first time in years. In her meditations, she was conquering some aspect of her body and her mind every day. Anna calmed down and became much less addicted to the emotions derived from stress hormones. She even started to feel love again, and she kept going, overcoming, overcoming, and overcoming every day on her way to becoming someone else. Anna grabs a hold of possibility. In May 2012, Anna attended one of my four-day progressive workshops held in upstate New York. On the third day, during the last of four meditations, she completely surrendered and finally let go. For the first time since she had started meditating, she found herself floating in an infinite black space, aware that she was aware of herself. She had moved beyond the memory of who she was and became pure consciousness, totally free of her body of her association to the material world and of linear time. She felt so free that she no longer cared about her health conditions. She felt so unlimited that she couldn't identify with her present identity. She felt so elevated that she was no longer connected to her past. In this state, Anna had no problems. She left her pain behind, and she was truly free for the first time. She wasn't her name, her gender, her disease, her culture, or her profession. She was beyond space and time. She had connected to a field of information called the quantum field, where all possibilities exist. Suddenly she saw herself in a brand new future, standing on a huge stage, 
holding a microphone and talking to a crowd as she told them the entire story of her healing. She wasn't imagining or visualizing this scene. It was as if she got a download of information, a glimpse of herself as a totally different woman in a new reality. Her inner world appeared much more real to her than her outer world, and she was having a full-on sensory experience without using her senses. The moment Anna experienced this new life in the meditation, a burst of joy and light came into her body, and she felt relief on a deep, visceral level. She knew she was something or someone greater, much grander than her physical body. In this state of intense joy, she felt such delight and such immense gratitude that she burst into laughter. And at that moment, Anna knew she was going to be okay. From then on, she developed so much trust, joy, love and gratitude that her meditations became easier and easier, and she began to go much deeper. As Anna moved out of her past, she felt this new energy opening her heart further and further. Instead of seeing her meditations as something she had to do every day, she started looking forward to them. It became her way of life. Doing the work became her habit. Her energy and vitality returned. She stopped taking antidepressants. Her thought patterns completely changed and her feelings were different. She felt like she was in a new state of being, so her actions changed drastically. Anna's health and life improved tremendously that year. The next year she attended several more events. By keeping connected to the work, Anna started to develop relationships with more people in our community, and she received more and more support to keep her going on her journey back to health. Like many of our students, she sometimes found it challenging not to take a few steps back into the old programs and the old patterns of thinking, feeling and acting once she returned home after a workshop. But even so, she kept doing her meditations every day. In September 2013, Anna's doctors gave her a very thorough medical checkup that included many different tests. One year and nine months after a cancer diagnosis, and six years after her husband's suicide, Anna's cancer had completely healed and the tumor in her esophagus had vanished. Her blood tests showed no cancer markers. The mucous membranes in her esophagus, vagina and anus were completely healed. Only a few minor problems remained. The mucous membranes in her mouth were still slightly red, although she no longer had any ulcerations and because of the medication she had taken for the ulcerations, she still didn't produce saliva. Anna had become a new person, a new person who is healthy. The disease existed in the old personality. By thinking, acting, and feeling differently, Anna reinvented a new self. In a sense, she had become reborn in the same life. In December 2013, Anna came to an event in Barcelona with the friend who had introduced her to my work. After hearing me tell the participants a story about a remarkable healing of another student in our community, Anna decided it was time to share her story with me. She wrote it all down and gave the letter to my personal assistant. Like many letters I get from students, the first line read, You are not going to believe this. After I read what she had written, 
The next day, I asked Anna to come up on stage and share her story with the audience. And there she was, a year and a half after the vision she'd had during her meditation in New York, unbeknownst to me, standing on a stage, talking to an audience about her journey healing herself. After the Barcelona event, Anna was inspired to work on her mouth even more. About six months later, I was lecturing in London, and Anna attended. I spoke in detail about epigenetics. Suddenly, a light went on for Anna. I've healed myself of all these medical conditions, including cancer, she thought. I should be able to signal the gene for my mouth to produce more saliva. A few months later, during another workshop in 2014, Anna suddenly felt saliva dripping in her mouth. Ever since then, Anna's mucous membranes and her saliva production have returned to normal. The ulcerations never came back. Today, Anna is a healthy, vital, happy, stable person with a very sharp and clear mind. Spiritually, she has grown so much that she goes very deep in her meditations and has had many mystical experiences. She is living a life full of creation, love and joy. She has become one of my corporate trainers regularly teaching this work to organizations and companies. In 2016, she founded a successful psychiatric institution employing more than 20 therapists and practitioners. She is financially independent and earns enough money to live a rich life. She travels around the world, visits beautiful places, and meets very inspiring people. She has a very loving and joyful partner, as well as new friends and new relationships that honor both her and her children. When you ask Anna about her past health problems, she will tell you that having those challenges was the best thing that ever happened to her. Think about it. What if the worst thing that ever happened to you turns out to be the best thing that has ever happened to you? She often tells me that she loves her present life, and I always respond, Of course you do. You created your life every day by not getting up from your meditations until you were in love with that life. So now you get to love your life. It was through the course of her transformation that Anna had, in effect, become supernatural. She had overcome her identity, which was connected to her past, and she literally created a new, healthy future, and her biology responded to a new mind. Anna is now the living example of truth and possibility, and if Anna healed herself, so can you. Getting Mystical Healing all sorts of physical conditions may be a very impressive benefit of doing this work, but it's not the only one. Because this book is also about the mystical, I want to open your mind to a realm of reality that will be just as transformative as healing, but that works on a deeper and different level. Becoming supernatural can also involve embracing a greater awareness of yourself and who you are in this world, and in other worlds as well. Let me share some stories about this from my own life to illustrate exactly what I mean and to show you what is possible for you too. One rainy winter evening in the Pacific Northwest, as I sat on my couch after a very long day, 
I listened to the branches of the tall fir trees outside my window filtering the gusts of wind through their canopies. My children were in bed, deep asleep, and at last I had a moment to myself. As I got comfortable, I began to review all the things I needed to accomplish the following day. By the time I'd made my mental list, I was too exhausted to think, so I just sat still for a few minutes, my mind empty. As I watched the shadows from the flames in the fireplace flicker and dance on the walls, I began to move into trance. My body was tired, but my mind was clear. I wasn't thinking or analyzing anymore. I was simply staring into space, being in the present moment. As my body relaxed more and more, I slowly and consciously let it fall asleep as I simultaneously kept my mind conscious and awake. I wouldn't let my attention narrow in on any object in the room, but instead kept my focus open. This was a game I often played with myself. I liked the practice because every once in a while, if everything lined up, I had very profound transcendental experiences. It was as if a door of sorts opened somewhere between wakefulness, sleep, and normal dreaming, and I slipped into a very lucid, mystical moment. I reminded myself to not expect anything, but to simply stay open. It took a lot of patience to not rush it, or get frustrated, or try to make something happen, but instead to slowly slip into that other world. That day I had finished writing an article about the pineal gland. After spending several months researching all the magical derivatives of melatonin that this little alchemical center had up its sleeve, I was overjoyed about linking the scientific world and the spirit world. For weeks my entire mind had been consumed with thinking about the role of the pineal metabolites as a possible connection to the mystical experiences most ancient cultures knew how to elicit such as Native American shamanic visions, the Hindu experience of samadhi, and other similar rituals involving altered states of consciousness. Some concepts that had been loose ends for years had suddenly clicked for me, and my discoveries left me feeling more whole. I thought I was one step closer to understanding the bridge to higher dimensions of space and time. All the information I had learned inspired me to a deeper awareness about what is possible for human beings. Yet I was still curious to learn more, curious enough to move my awareness to where the pineal gland existed in my head. I casually thought, speaking to the gland, where are you anyway? As I rested my attention in the space the pineal gland occupies in my brain, and as I was drifting off into the blackness, suddenly, out of nowhere, a vivid image of my pineal gland appeared in my mind as a three-dimensional round knob. Its mouth was wide open in a spasm, and it was releasing a white milky substance. I was shocked by the intensity of the holographic image, but was too relaxed to be aroused or react, so I simply surrendered and observed. It was so real. I knew what I was seeing before me was my own tiny pineal gland. In the next instant, a huge timepiece appeared right in front of me. It was one of those old-fashioned pocket watches with a chain, and the vision was incredibly vivid. The moment I put my attention on the timepiece, 
I received very clear information. I suddenly knew that linear time as I believed it to be, with a definite past, present and future, was not the way the world really works. Instead, I understood that everything is actually happening in an eternal present moment. In this infinite amount of time, there exists infinite spaces, dimensions or possible realities to experience. If there is only one eternal moment happening, then it makes sense that we would have no past in this incarnation, let alone no past lives. But I could see every past and future like I was looking at an old-fashioned piece of movie film with an endless number of frames, with the frames representing not single moments but windows of limitless possibilities that existed as scaffolding and went on in all directions forever. It was much like looking into two mirrors opposite one another and seeing infinite spaces or dimensions reflected in both directions. But to understand what I was seeing, imagine that those infinite dimensions are above and below you, in front and behind you, and to your left and to your right, and each one of those limitless possibilities already existed. I knew that by putting my attention on any one of those possibilities, I would actually experience that reality. I also realized I wasn't separate from anything. I sensed oneness with everything, every one, every place, and every time. I can only describe it as the most familiar, unfamiliar feeling I've ever had in my life. The pineal gland, as soon as I understood I was being shown, serves as a dimensional timepiece that, when activated, can dial into any time. When I saw the hands of the timepiece move forward or backward, I understood that, like a time machine set to any particular time, there is also a reality or a dimension to experience in a particular space. This amazing vision was showing me that the pineal gland, like a cosmic antenna, had the ability to tune into information beyond our physical senses and to hook us up to other realities that already exist in the eternal moment. While the download of information I received seemed limitless, no words exist that can completely describe the magnitude of this experience. Experiencing my past and future selves simultaneously. As the hands of the watch moved backward to a past time, a dimension of space and time came to life. I immediately found myself in a reality relevant to me personally, although amazingly, that past moment was still occurring in the present moment I was experiencing while sitting on my couch in the living room. I next became aware that I was in a physical space at that specific time. I observed myself as a young child, again, while simultaneously having the experience of being the adult me on the couch. The child version of me was about seven years old and had a very high fever. I remember how much I loved fevers at that age because I could go deep within and have the kind of abstract dreams and visions that often come with the delirium produced by high body temperatures. This specific time I was in my room in bed with the covers up the bridge of my nose, and my mother had just left the room. I was happy I was alone. The moment she closed the door, I somehow innately knew to do exactly what I had just been doing in my living room as an adult, 
continuously relaxing my body and remaining somewhere between sleep and wakefulness as I stayed present to whatever came up. Up to this point in my present life, I had completely forgotten about the memory of this childhood experience, but when I lived it again in that moment, I saw myself in the midst of a lucid, conscious dream, comprehending possible realities like the squares on a chessboard. As I observed myself as this young boy, I was deeply moved by what he was attempting to understand, and I wondered how he could grasp such complicated concepts at his age. In that moment, as I watched him, I fell in love with that little guy, and the second I embraced that emotion, I somehow felt a simultaneous connection to both that point in time and the one I was experiencing as my present time back in Washington State. I had such a strong knowingness that what I was doing then and what I am doing now were happening at the same time, and that those moments were significantly connected. In that split second, the love I felt for him as my present self was drawing that young boy to the future I was living now. Then the experience got even stranger. That scene faded away, and the watch appeared again. I became aware that the hands of the timepiece could also move forward. Filled with a sense of wonder, and without any trepidation or fear, I simply observed the watch move forward in time. Instantaneously, I was standing barefoot in my backyard in Washington in the cold night. It's difficult to explain what time it was because it was the same night I was in my living room, but the me who was outside the house was the me from the future in that now. Again, words are limited here, but the only way I can explain this experience is that the future personality, called Joe Dispenza, had changed immensely. I was so much more evolved, and I felt amazing, euphoric in fact. I was so aware, or should I say as that person, I am so aware. By aware, I mean superconscious, as if all my senses were heightened 100%. Everything I saw, touched, felt, smelt, tasted and heard was amplified. My senses were so elevated that I was acutely aware of and paying attention to everything around me, wanting to experience the moment completely. And because my awareness increased so drastically, so did my consciousness and therefore my energy. Feeling so full of this intense energy caused me to be more conscious of everything I sensed simultaneously. I can describe this feeling only as consistent, unwavering, highly organized energy. It was nothing like the chemical emotions we normally feel as human beings. In fact, in that moment I knew I couldn't even feel those normal human emotions. I'd evolved beyond them. I did, however, feel love although it was an evolved form of love that was not chemical, but electric. I felt almost as though I was on fire, passionately in love with life. I was in an incredibly pure form of joy. I was also walking around my backyard in the middle of winter with no shoes and no jacket, yet I was so aware of the feeling of the cold that it was actually intensely enjoyable. I didn't have an opinion about how ice-cold the ground under my feet was, 
I just loved having my feet touch the frozen grass on the earth, and I felt very connected to both the feeling and the grass. I understood that if I entertained the typical thoughts and judgments I normally would have about being cold, it would cause me to create a sense of polarity, dividing the energy I was experiencing. If I judged it, I would lose the feeling of wholeness. The amazing feeling of energy that I was experiencing inside my body was so much greater than the conditions in my surrounding environment, the cold. And as a result, I effortlessly embraced the cold with zeal. It was simply life. In fact, it was so pleasurable that I didn't want the moment to end. I wanted it to last forever. I walked as this upgraded version of myself with strength and knowingness. I felt very empowered and calm, yet overflowing with joy for existence and love for life. Passing through my garden, I intentionally walked on huge basalt columns that were laid on their sides, stacked like huge stairs to create levels to set at the fire pit. I loved the experience of walking barefoot on those huge pieces of stone. I truly honored their magnificence. As I continued walking, I approached a fountain that I had built, and I smiled at the memory of my brother and me creating such a marvel. Suddenly, I saw a tiny woman in a glowing white garment. She was no more than two feet tall, and she was standing a little behind the fountain with another woman of normal size who was dressed similarly and was also radiant and full of light. The other woman stood in the background observing, seemingly acting as the tiny woman's protector. When I looked at the tiny woman, she turned to me and gazed into my eyes. I felt an even stronger energy of love as if she were sending it to me. Even as this evolved version of myself, I realized I had never felt anything like that before. The feelings of wholeness and love amplified exponentially. And I thought to myself, wow, is there even more love than the love I was just experiencing moments ago? It wasn't at all a romantic love. It was more of that exhilarating, electrifying energy, and it was being awakened from inside of me. I knew she was acknowledging that there was indeed even more love within me to experience. I also knew she was more evolved than I was. When I felt that electricity, it carried a message to look toward the kitchen window, and I instantly remembered why I was there. I turned and looked into the kitchen where my present self, few hours before I went to the couch to relax, was busy washing dishes. From the backyard, I smiled. I was so in love with him. I saw his sincerity. I saw his struggles. I saw his passion. I saw his love. I saw his mind busy, as always, constantly attempting to dovetail concepts into meaning, and among other things, I saw some of his future. Like a great parent, I was proud of him, and I had nothing but admiration for who he was in that moment. As I was feeling that intense energy increase inside of me while I observed him, I witnessed him suddenly stop washing the dishes and look out the window, staring out and panning the backyard. While I was still my future self, I was able to remember the moment as my present self, and I remembered that I had indeed stopped and looked outside in that instant because I felt 
a spontaneous feeling of love in my chest, and I sensed that I was being watched or that someone was outside. I further recalled that while I was washing a glass, I actually leaned forward to minimize the glaze in the window from the kitchen light above me and peered into the darkness for a few minutes before returning to the remaining items in the sink. My future self was doing to my present self what the beautiful luminous lady had done to me moments before. Now I understood why she was there. And like looking at the child in the previous scene, once again the love that my future self was feeling for my present self somehow connected me to my future self. My future me was there to call my present self to that future, and I knew that it was love that made that bond possible. The evolved version of me had such a sense of knowing. The paradox is that it is all me living at the same time. In fact, there is an infinite number of me's, not just the one in the past, the one in the present, and the one in the future. There are so many more possible me's in the realm of infinity, and there is not just one infinity, but multiple infinities. And all of this is happening in the eternal now. When I came back to physical reality as we know it on the couch, which paled in comparison to the other dimensional world I was just in, my first thought was, wow, my view of reality is so limited. The rich inner experience provided such a sense of clarity and the understanding that my beliefs, that is what I thought I knew about life, God, myself, time, space, and what is even possible to experience in this infinite realm, was so very limited, and I hadn't even realized it until that moment. I knew I was like an infant with little comprehension of the magnitude of how big this thing we call reality is. I understood without fear or anxiety what the phrase, the unknown, meant for the first time in my life, and I knew I would never be the same person again. I'm sure you can imagine that when something like this happens, trying to explain it to your family or friends suggests some chemical imbalance in the brain. I was hesitant to talk about the event to anyone because I didn't even have the words to describe the experience, and I didn't want to jinx it from happening again. For months I was very preoccupied with reviewing the entire process that I thought may have created the experience. I was also mystified about the concept of time, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Aside from the paradigm shift about the eternal moment in time, I discovered something more. I realized after the transcendental event that night, when I came back to the world of three dimensions, that the whole experience had transpired in about ten minutes. I had just lived two extensive events and it should have taken much more time for the entire experience to unfold. This time dilation further piqued my interest in committing more of my energy to investigating what had happened to me. Once I understood more, I hoped I might be able to reproduce the experience. For days after that important night, the center of my chest was electric in the same way I had felt when the beautiful tiny woman activated something within me. I kept thinking, how can this feeling still be lingering inside of me unless something real happened? When I put my attention on the center of my chest, I noticed the feeling amplify. 
Understandably, I wasn't very interested in any social interaction during this period because the people and conditions in the outer world distracted from that feeling in my inner world and the special feeling diminished. In time, it finally faded completely, but I never stopped thinking about the idea that there is always more love to experience and that the energy I had embraced in that realm still lived within me. I wanted to activate it again, but I didn't know how. For a long time, even though I tried and tried to reproduce the experience, nothing happened. I now realized that the expectation of the same outcome, combined with the frustration of trying to force it to happen, is the worst combination for creating another mystical experience, or anything for that matter. I became lost in my own personal analysis, trying to figure out how it occurred and how I could make it happen again. I decided to add a few new approaches. Instead of trying to recreate the experience in the evening, I decided to wake up early in the morning and meditate. Since melatonin levels are the highest between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., the mystical chemical metabolites of melatonin are the very substrates responsible for creating a lucid event. I decided I would practice my inner work at 4 every morning. Before I share what happened next, I want to ask you to keep in mind that this was an unusually difficult time in my life. I was deciding whether it was worth it for me to continue to teach. I'd experienced a fair amount of chaos in my life after appearing in the 2004 documentary What the Bleep Do We Know? I was considering stepping away from the public world and disappearing into a simpler life. It seemed so much easier just to walk away. Living a Past Incarnation in the Present Moment One morning about an hour and a half after I started my meditation in a seated position, I finally reclined. I put some pillows under my knees so I wouldn't fall asleep too quickly, allowing me to linger between wakefulness and sleep. As I lay down, I simply put my attention in the place the pineal gland occupies in my head. But this time, instead of trying to make something happen, I just let go and said to myself, Whatever. Apparently, that was the magic word. I know what that means now. I surrendered got out of the way, let go of any specific outcome, and simply opened up to possibility. The next thing I knew, I was experiencing myself as a stout man in a very hot region of the world that seemed to be what we now call Greece or Turkey. The terrain was rocky, the ground was parched, and stone buildings like those in Greco-Roman times were interspersed with many small tents made of brightly coloured fabrics. I was wearing a one-piece skirted burlap garment that fell from my shoulders to my mid-thighs, and I had a thick rope tied around my waist like a belt. I wore sandals roped up to my calves. I had thick curly hair and my body felt strong. My shoulders were broad and my arms and legs were muscular. I was a philosopher and a long-time student of some charismatic movement. I was simultaneously the self in that experience and my present self observing me in that particular time and space. Again, I was way more conscious than normal. I was super conscious. 
All my senses were heightened, and I was very aware of everything. I could smell the familiar musk of my body and could taste the salt of my perspiration dripping from my face. I loved the taste. I felt grounded in the physicality and strength of my body. I was aware of deep pain in my right shoulder, but it did not consume my attention. I saw the brightness of the blue sky and the richness of the green trees and mountains, as if I were living in technicolor. I heard seagulls in the distance, and I knew I was near a large body of water. I was on a pilgrimage and mission of sorts. I was traveling about the country teaching the philosophy that I had studied and lived by my whole life. I was under the tutelage of a grand master whom I loved very deeply because of the care, patience, and wisdom he had given me for so many years. It was my time now to be initiated and to deliver a message to change the minds and hearts of the culture. I knew that the message I was disseminating was counter to the current beliefs of that time, and that the government and religious orders of the day would challenge me. The main message of the philosophy I studied would free people from living in any type of obligation to some thing or someone outside of them. It would also inspire individuals to demonstrate a code of principles that would empower them to have more enriched and meaningful lives. I was passionate about this idealism, and I worked daily to live in alignment with the doctrines. Of course, the message would omit the need for religion and for any dependence on governments, and it would free people from personal pain and suffering. As the scene came to life, I had just finished addressing a crowd in a relatively populated village. The gathering was just breaking up when suddenly, several men quickly moved through the masses to arrest me. Before I could even try to escape, I was seized. I knew that they had planned their strategy well. If they had begun to move about while I had been talking to the crowd, I would have spotted them. They timed it perfectly. I surrendered without resistance, and they took me to a prison cell where I was left alone. Locked in a small stone cube with narrow slits for windows, I sat there knowing my destiny. Nothing I could do would prepare me for what was about to happen. Within two days, I was taken to the center of the city where hundreds of people gathered. Many of them, the same people who had listened to me speak just a few days earlier. But now, they eagerly anticipated the chance to watch my trial and impending torture. I was stripped to a small cloth undergarment and then strapped to a large horizontal stone slab with large grooves notched into the corners through which ropes slid. The ropes had metal cuffs on the ends that were fastened to my wrists and ankles. Then it began. A man standing to my left started to crank a lever that moved the slab slowly from a horizontal position forward to a more vertical position. As the stone block moved upward, the ropes pulled my limbs tighter in all four directions. When I made it to about 45 degrees, the real pain began. Someone who seemed to be a magistrate yelled out asking me if I would continue teaching my philosophy. I did not look up or answer. He then ordered the man to crank the lever further. At a certain point I started to hear audible noises and pops, evidence of my spine dislocating in certain areas. As the observer of this scene I watched the look on my face as the pain increased. It was like looking into a mirror and seeing myself, 
I became acutely aware that it was me on that slab. The metal cuffs around my wrists and ankles now tore into my skin, and the sharp metal burned. I was bleeding. One of my shoulders dislocated, and I heaved and grunted in pain. My body was convulsing and shaking as I tried to resist the tearing of my limbs by flexing and holding my muscles tight in resistance. Letting go would have been unbearable. Suddenly, the magistrate hollered out again, asking me if I would continue to teach. I had a thought. I will agree to stop teaching, and then when they let me down from this public display of torture, I will simply start again. I reasoned that this was the right answer. It would appease the magistrate and stop the pain and my death while enabling me to continue my mission. I slowly shook my head from side to side in silence. Then the magistrate pressed me to verbally say no, but I would not speak. He then motioned quickly to the tormentor on my left to push the crank even harder. I looked down at the man as he turned the gears with a clear intention to hurt me. I saw his face, and as we looked into each other's eyes, I, as the observer, instantly recognized this person as someone in my present life as Joe Dispenza. The same person, but in a different body. Something clicked within me as I witnessed this scene. I recognized that this tormentor is still tormenting others, including me, in my current incarnation, and I understand that person's role in my life. It was an odd familiar feeling or knowing, and it made perfect sense. As the slab accelerated upward, my lower back snapped and my body started to lose control. That was the moment that broke me. I wept from the blinding pain and also felt such a deep sadness consume my whole being. When the weight of the heavy stone was released, it fell quickly back to the horizontal position. I lay there quivering, uncontrollably, in silence. I was then dragged back to the small prison cell where I lay curled up in the corner. For three days I couldn't stop the flashbacks of my torture. I was so humiliated that I never could speak in public again. The very thought of returning to my mission created such a visceral response in my body that I stopped even thinking about it. One night they released me, and without being noticed, head down in utter shame, I disappeared. I was unable to look anyone in the eye ever again. I felt like I had failed in my mission. I spent the rest of my life in a cave by the sea, trapping fish and living in silence as a hermit. As I witnessed this poor man's plight and his choice to hide from the world, I understood that this was a message for me. I knew that in my present life I could not disappear or hide from the world again, and that my soul wanted me to see that I had to continue my work. I had to make the effort to stand up for a message and never again retract from adversity. I also recognized that I hadn't failed at all. I had done my best. I knew that the young philosopher still lived in the eternal present moment as a myriad of possible me's, and that I could change my future and his by never again being afraid to live for the truth instead of dying for it.
Each of us has myriad possible incarnations that exist in the eternal present moment, all waiting to be discovered. When the mystery of the self is unveiled, we can wake up to the understanding that we are not linear beings living a linear life, but instead dimensional beings living dimensional lives. The beauty behind the infinite probabilities that await us is that the only way we can change those futures is to change ourselves in the present infinite moment. Chapter 2 The Present Moment If you want to experience the supernatural in your own life, by healing your body, creating new opportunities you could never have imagined before, and having transcendent, mystical experiences, you first need to master the concept of the present moment, the eternal now. There's a lot of talk about being present or being in the now these days. While most people understand the basics of what that means, not to think about the future or live in the past, I want to offer you a completely different understanding of the concept. It's going to require that you get beyond the physical world, including your body, your identity and your environment, and even beyond time itself. This is where you turn possibility into reality. After all, if you don't get beyond who you think you are and the way you've been conditioned to believe the world works, it's not possible to create a new life or a new destiny. So in a very real sense, you have to get out of your own way, transcend the memory of yourself as an identity, and allow something greater than you, something mystical, to take over. In this chapter, I'm going to explain how that works. First, let's take a look at how the brain functions. When any neurological tissue in the brain or the body is activated, it creates mind. Consequently, from a neuroscientific understanding, mind is the brain in action. For instance, you have a specific mind to drive your car. You have another mind to take a shower. You have a different mind when you sing a song or listen to music. You use a specific level of mind to execute each of those complex functions because you've probably done each of these tasks thousands of times. So your brain turns on in a very specific way whenever you do any of them. When your brain is in action as you drive your car, for example, you are in fact turning on a specific sequence, pattern and combination of neurological networks. Those neural networks, or neural nets, are simply clusters of neurons that work together as a community, just like an automatic software program or a macro, because you've done that particular action so many times. In other words, the neurons that fire together to accomplish the task become more wired together. As you consciously choose to perform the task of driving your vehicle, we could say that you are automatically selecting and instructing those neurons in your brain to turn on to create a level of mind. For the most part, your brain is a product of the past. It has been shaped and molded to become a living record of everything you have learned and experienced up to this point in your life. Learning from a neuroscientific standpoint is when neurons in your brain assemble to form thousands of synaptic connections and those connections then assemble into complex, three-dimensional neurological networks. Think of learning as your brain getting an upgrade. When you pay attention to knowledge or information, and it makes sense to you, this interaction with the environment leaves biological impressions in your brain. 
When you experience something new, your senses write the story neurologically in your brain, and even more neurons come together to make even more enriched connections, upgrading your brain even further. Experiences not only enhance the brain's circuitry, but they also create emotions. Think of emotions as the chemical residue from past experiences, or chemical feedback. The stronger the emotional quotient from an event in your life, the more the experience leaves a lasting impression in your brain. That's how long-term memories are formed. So, if learning means making new connections in your brain, memories are when you maintain those connections. The more you repeat a thought, choice, behavior. Experience or emotion, the more those neurons fire and wire together, and the more they will sustain a long-term relationship. In Anna's story in the previous chapter, you learn most of your experiences come from your interaction with your external environment. Since your senses plug you into the external environment and neurologically record the narrative in your brain, when you experience a highly charged emotional event, bad or good. That moment becomes embossed neurologically in your brain as a memory. Therefore, when an experience changes how you normally feel chemically, and heightens your attention to what caused it, you will associate a specific person or thing with where your body is at a particular time and place. That's how you create memories by interacting with the outer world. It's safe to say that the only place the past actually exists is in your brain. And in your body, how your past becomes your future. Let's take a closer look at what happens biochemically inside your body when you think a thought or feel an emotion. When you think a thought or have a memory, a biochemical reaction begins in your brain, causing the brain to release certain chemical signals. That's how immaterial thoughts literally become matter. They become chemical messengers. These chemical signals make your body feel exactly the way you were just thinking. Once you notice you are feeling a particular way, then you generate more thoughts equal to how you're feeling, and then you release more chemicals from your brain to make you feel the way you've been thinking. For example, if you have a fearful thought, you start to feel fear. The moment you feel fear, that emotion influences you to think more fearful thoughts. And those thoughts trigger the release of even more chemicals in the brain and body to make you continue to feel more fear. The next thing you know, you get caught in a loop where your thinking creates feeling, and your feeling creates thinking. If thoughts are the vocabulary of the brain, and feelings are the vocabulary of the body, and the cycle of how you think and feel becomes your state of being, then your entire state of being is in the past. When you fire and wire the same circuits in your brain over and over again because you keep thinking the same thoughts, you are hardwiring your brain into the same patterns. As a result, your brain becomes an artifact of your past thinking, and in time, it becomes easier to automatically think in the same ways. At the same time, as you repeatedly feel the same emotions over and over again. Since, as I just said, emotions are the vocabulary of the body and the chemical residue of past experiences, you are conditioning your body into the past. 
So now let's look at what that means for you on a day-to-day -day basis. Given what you just learned about feelings and emotions being the chemical end products of past events, the moment you wake up in the morning and search for the familiar feeling called you, you are starting your day in the past. So when you start to think about your problems, those problems, which are connected to the memories of past experiences of different people or things at certain times and places, create familiar feelings such as unhappiness, futility, sadness, pain, grief, anxiety, worry, frustration, unworthiness or guilt. If those emotions are driving your thoughts and you cannot think greater than how you feel, then you are also thinking in the past. And if those familiar emotions influence the choices you are going to make that day, the behaviours you are going to exhibit or the experiences you are going to create for yourself, then you are going to appear predictable and your life is going to stay the same. Now let's say after you wake up, you turn off your alarm and as you lie there in bed, you check your Facebook, your Instagram, your WhatsApp, your Twitter, your texts, your emails, and then the news. Now you are really remembering who you are as you reaffirm your personality and connect your past-present personal reality. Then you go to the bathroom, you use the toilet, brush your teeth, take a shower, get dressed, and then head for the kitchen. You drink some coffee and eat breakfast. Maybe you watch the news or check your email again. It's the same routine you follow every day. Then you drive to work using the same old route, and when you get there you interact with the same co-workers you saw the day before. You spend your day performing pretty much the same duties you performed yesterday. You might even react to the same challenges at work with the same emotions. Then after work, you drive home Maybe you stop at the same grocery store and buy the food you like and always eat. You cook the same food for dinner and watch the same television show at the same time while sitting in the same place in your living room. Then you get ready for bed in the same way you always do. You brush your teeth with your right hand starting from the upper right side of your mouth. You crawl into the same side of the bed. Maybe you read a little and then you go to sleep. If you keep doing these same routines over and over again, they will become a habit. A habit is a redundant set of automatic, unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that you acquire through frequent repetition. Basically, it means your body is now on autopilot, running a series of programs, and over time, your body becomes the mind. You've done this routine so many times that your body automatically knows how to do certain things better than your brain or conscious mind. You just switch on the autopilot and go unconscious, which means you'll wake up the next morning and essentially do the same things all over again. In a very real sense, your body is dragging you into the same predictable future based on what you have been repeatedly doing in the same familiar past. You will think the same thoughts and then make the same choices that lead to the same behaviours, that create the same experiences, that produce the same emotions. Over time, you've created a set of hardwired neurological networks in the brain and you have emotionally conditioned your body to live in the past. And that past becomes your future. 
If you were looking at a timeline of your day starting with waking up in the morning and continuing until you go to bed that night, you could pick up that timeline of yesterday or today, your past, and place it in the space reserved for tomorrow, the future, because essentially the same actions you took today are the ones you were going to take tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. Let's face it, if you keep the same routine as yesterday, it makes sense that your tomorrow is going to be a lot like your yesterday. Your future is just a rerun of your past. That's because your yesterday is creating your tomorrow. Take a look at figure 2.1. Each of those vertical lines represent the same thought that leads to the same choice that initiates an automatic behavior that creates a known experience that produces a familiar feeling or an emotion. If you keep reproducing the same sequence, in time all those individual steps merge into one automatic program. This is how you lose your free will to a program. The arrow represents an unknown experience dropping in somewhere between your driving to work in traffic, knowing you are going to be late again, and you trying to stop by the dry cleaners on your way. We could say that your mind and body are in the known, the same predictable future based on what you did in the same familiar past. And in that known certain future, there's no room for the unknown. In fact, if something new happened, if something unknown were to unfold in your life at that moment to change the same predictable timeline of your day, you'd probably be annoyed at the disruption of your routine. You'd likely consider it troublesome, problematic, and downright inconvenient. You might say, Can you come back tomorrow? This is not the right time. The fact is, there's no room for the unknown in a predictable life. But being predictable is not how the unknown works. The unknown is unfamiliar, uncertain, but it's also exciting because it occurs in ways you cannot expect or anticipate. So let me ask you, how much room in your routine, predictable life do you have for the unknown? By staying in the known, following the same sequence each day of thinking the same thoughts, making the same choices, demonstrating the same programmed habits, recreating the same experiences that stamp the same networks of neurons into the same patterns to reaffirm the same familiar feeling called you, you are repeating the same level of mind over and over again. In time, your brain becomes automatically programmed to do any one of those particular sequences more easily and effortlessly the next time, and then the next time, and so on. As each of these individual steps merge into one complete step, thinking a familiar thought of an experience of somebody or something at some place in some time will automatically create the anticipation of the feeling of the experience. If you can predict the feeling of any experience, you are still in the known. For instance, the thought of having a meeting with the same team of people you have worked with for years can automatically cause you to call up the emotion of what the future event will feel like. When you can predict the feeling of that future event, because you've had enough past experiences to make it known to you, you are probably going to be creating more of the same. And of course, you are right. But that's because you are the same. 
By the same means, if you are in the automatic program and cannot predict the feeling of an experience in your life, you will probably be hesitant to engage it. We need to look at one more aspect of thinking and feeling to get the full picture of what's happening when we keep living in the same state of being. This thinking-feeling loop also produces a measurable electromagnetic field that surrounds our physical bodies. In fact, our bodies are always emitting light, energy or frequencies that carry a specific message, information or intention. By the way, when I say light, I am not just referring to the light we see, but to all spectrums of light, including X-rays, cell phone waves and microwaves. In the same way, we also receive vital information that is carried on different frequencies. So we are always sending and receiving electromagnetic energy. Here's how that works. When we think of thought, those networks of neurons that fire in our brain create electrical charges. When those thoughts also cause a chemical reaction that results in a feeling or an emotion, as well as when a familiar feeling or emotion is driving our thoughts, those feelings create magnetic charges. They merge with the thoughts that create the electric charges to produce a specific electromagnetic field equal to your state of being. Think of emotions as energy in motion. When someone experiencing a strong emotion walks into a room, their energy, aside from their body language, is often very palpable. We have all felt another person's energy and intent when they were angry or very frustrated. We felt it because they were emitting a strong signal of energy that carried specific information. The same is true of a very sexual person, a person who is suffering, or a person who has a calm, loving energy. All those energies can be sensed and felt. As you might expect, different emotions produce different frequencies. The frequencies of creative, elevated emotions like love, joy and gratitude are much higher than the emotions of stress, such as fear and anger, because they carry different levels of conscious intent and energy. See figure 2.2, which details some of the different frequencies associated with various emotional states. You'll read more about this concept later in the book. So if we are recreating the past day after day, thinking the same thoughts and feeling the same emotions, we are broadcasting the same electromagnetic field over and over again, sending out the same energy with the same message. From the perspective of energy and information, this means the same energy of our past continues to carry the same information, which then keeps creating the same future. Our energy, then, is essentially equal to our past. The only way we can change our lives is to change our energy, to change the electromagnetic field we are constantly broadcasting. In other words, to change our state of being, we have to change how we think and how we feel. If where you place your attention is where you place your energy, a key concept you'll read more about later in this chapter, then the moment you place your attention on a familiar emotion, your attention and your energy are in the past. If those familiar emotions are connected to a memory of some past event involving a person or an object at a particular place and time, then your attention and your energy are in the past as well. 
As a consequence, you are siphoning your energy out of the present moment into your past. By the same means, if you start to think about all the people you have to see, the things you have to do, and the places you have to go at certain times in your routine day, you are siphoning your attention and energy into a predictable known future. Take a look at figure 2.3, which illustrates this point. All of your energy is now completely commingled with those known experiences in that specific line of time. Your energy is creating more of the same, and your body is going to follow your mind to the same events in your same reality. Your energy is being directed out of the present moment and into the past and the future. As a result, you have very little energy left to create an unknown experience in a new timeline. Figure 2.3 also shows how the electromagnetic energy you emanate is a vibrational match with everything known to you. So as you start your day, when you have the thought of the toilet, the next thing you know, there you are, walking toward the toilet. Then you have the thought of the shower, and you find yourself in the shower adjusting the water temperature. You have the thought of the coffee maker, and you're projecting your attention and energy to the coffee maker. And as you automatically walk to the kitchen to make your morning cup of java, once again your body is following your mind. And if you've done that for the last 22 years, your body is going to effortlessly coast right over there. Your body is always following your mind, but in this case, it's been repeatedly following your mind to the known. That's because that's where your attention, and therefore your energy, is. So now let me ask you this. Could it ever be possible for your body to start following your mind to the unknown? If so, you can see that you would have to change where you put your attention, and that would lead to changing your energy which would require you to change how you think and how you feel long enough for something new to happen. While it may sound incredible, this is indeed possible. It makes sense that just as your body has been following your mind to every known experience in your life, like the coffee maker each morning, if you were to start investing your attention and energy into the unknown, your body would then be able to follow your mind into the unknown, a new experience in your future. Priming your mind and body for a new future. If you are familiar with my work, you know that I'm in love with the concept of mental rehearsal. I'm fascinated by how we can change the brain as well as the body by thought alone. Think about that for a moment. If you focus your attention on specific imagery in your mind and become very present with a sequence of repeated thoughts and feelings, your brain and body will not know the difference between what is occurring in the outer world and what is happening in your inner world. So when you are fully engaged and focused, the inner world of imagination will appear as an outer world experience, and your biology will change accordingly. That means you can make your brain and body look as if a physical experience has already happened without having the actual experience. What you put your attention on and mentally rehearse over and over again not only becomes who you are from a biological perspective, it also determines your future. Here's a good example. A team of Harvard researchers took a group of volunteers who had never before played the piano and divided the group in half. 
One half practiced a simple five-finger piano exercise for two hours a day over a period of five days. The remaining half did the same thing, but just by imagining they were sitting at the piano without physically moving their fingers in any way. The before and after brain scans showed that both groups created a dramatic number of new neural circuits and new neurological programming in the region of their brains that controls finger movements, even though one group did so by thought alone. Think about this. The folks who mentally rehearsed the actions had brains that looked like the experience had already happened, even though they never lifted a finger. If you were to put them in front of a piano after five days of mental rehearsal, many of them would be able to play the exercise they imagined pretty well, even though they had never before tickled the ivories. By mentally imagining the activity every day, they installed the neurological hardware in preparation for the experience. They repeatedly fired and wired those brain circuits with their attention and intention, and over time the hardware became an automatic software program in their brains, and it became easier to do the next time. So if they were to start to play after five days of mental practice, their behaviors would become easily aligned with their conscious intentions because they prime their brains for the experience ahead of time. That's how powerful the mind can be once trained. Similar studies show the same kinds of results with muscle training. In a pioneering study at the Cleveland Clinic, 10 research subjects between the ages of 20 and 35 imagined flexing one of their biceps as hard as they could in five training sessions a week for 12 weeks. Every other week, the researchers recorded the subject's electrical brain activity during their sessions and measured their muscle strength. By the end of the study, the subjects had increased their bicep strength by 13.5%, even though they hadn't actually been using their muscles at all. They maintained this gain for three months after the training session stopped. More recently, a research team made up of scientists from the University of Texas at San Antonio, the Cleveland Clinic, and the Kessler Foundation Research Center in West Orange, New Jersey, asked subjects to visualize contracting their elbow flexor muscles. As they did so, they were instructed to urge the muscles to flex as strong and hard as possible, adding a firm intention to their strong mental energy for 15-minute sessions five days a week for 12 weeks. One group of subjects was instructed to use what is called external or third-person imagery, imagining themselves performing the exercise by observing themselves in a scene in their head separate from the experience, like watching a movie of themselves. A second group was instructed to use internal or first-person imagery, imagining that their bodies as they existed right then in real time were doing the exercise, making it more immediate and realistic. A third group, the control, did no practice. The group using external imagery, as well as the control group, showed no significant change, but the group using internal imagery showed a 10.8% increase in strength. Another team of researchers from Ohio University went so far as to wrap the wrists of 29 volunteers in surgical casts for one month, ensuring they wouldn't be able to move their wrists even unintentionally. Half the group practiced mental imagery exercises for 11 minutes a day, five days a week, 
imagining they were flexing their immobilized wrist muscles while actually remaining completely still. The other half, the control group, did nothing. At the end of the month, when all the casts came off, the muscles of the imagery group were twice as strong as those of the control group. Each of these three muscle studies show how mental rehearsal not only changes the brain, but can also change the body by thought alone. In other words, by practicing the behaviors in their mind and consciously reviewing the activity on a regular basis, the bodies of the subjects looked like they had been physically performing the activity, and yet they never did the exercises. Those who added the emotional component of doing the exercise as hard as possible to the intensity of the mental imagery made the experience even more real and the results more pronounced. In the piano playing study, the brains of the research subjects looked as though the experience they'd imagined had already happened because they had primed their brains for that future. In a similar way, the subjects in the muscle flexing studies changed their bodies to look as if they had previously experienced that reality, just by mentally rehearsing the activity through thought alone. You can see why when you wake up in the morning and start thinking about the people you have to see, the places you have to go and the things you have to do in your busy schedule, that's mentally rehearsing. And then you add an intense emotion to it like suffering or unhappiness or frustration just like the elbow flexor volunteers who urge their muscles to flex without moving them at all. You are conditioning your brain and body to look like that future has already happened. Since experience enriches the brain and creates an emotion that signals the body, when you continuously create an inward experience that is as real as an outer experience, over time you are going to change your brain and body, just like any real experience would. In fact, when you wake up and start thinking about your day neurologically, biologically, chemically, and even genetically, which I will explain in the next section, it looks as though that day has already happened for you. And in fact, it has. Once you actually start the day's activities, just as in the experiments above, your body is naturally and automatically going to behave equal to your conscious or unconscious intentions. If you've been doing the same things for years on end, those circuits, as well as the rest of your biology, are more readily and easily activated. That's because not only do you prime your biology every day with your mind, but you also recreate the same physical behaviors in order to reinforce those experiences further in your brain and body. And it actually becomes easier to go unconscious every day because you keep mentally and physically reinforcing the same habits over again, creating the habit of behaving by habit. Making Genetic Changes We used to think that genes created disease and that we were at the mercy of our DNA. So if many people in someone's family died of heart disease, we assumed that their chances of also developing heart disease would be pretty high. But we now know through the science of epigenetics that it's not the gene that creates disease, but the environment that programs our genes to create disease, and not just the external environment outside our body, cigarette smoke or pesticides, for example, but also the internal environment within our body, the environment outside ourselves. What do I mean by the environment within our body? 
As I said previously, emotions are chemical feedback, the end products of experiences we have in our external environment. So as we react to a situation in our external environment that produces an emotion, the resulting internal chemistry can signal our genes to either turn on, upregulating or producing an increased expression of the gene, or to turn off, downregulating or producing a decreased expression of the gene. The gene itself doesn't physically change. The expression of the gene changes, and that expression is what matters most because that is what affects our health and our lives. Thus, even though someone may have a genetic predisposition for a particular disease, for example, if their genes continue to express health instead of expressing that disease, they won't develop the condition and will remain healthy. Think of the body as a finely tuned instrument that produces proteins. Every one of our cells, except red blood cells, makes proteins, which are responsible for the body's physical structure and physiological function. For example, muscle cells make specific proteins known as actin and myosin, and skin cells make the proteins collagen and elastin. Immune cells make antibodies, thyroid cells make thyroxin, and bone marrow cells make hemoglobin. Some of our eye cells make keratin, while our pancreatic cells make enzymes like protease, lipase, and amylase. There isn't an organ or a system in the body that does not rely on or produce proteins. They are a vital part of our immune system, digestion, cellular repair, and bone and muscle structure. You name it, they're a part of it. In a very real way, then, the expression of proteins is the expression of life and is equal to the health of the body. In order for a cell to make a protein, a gene must be expressed. That's the job of the genes, to facilitate making proteins. When the signal from the environment outside of the cell reaches the cell membrane, the chemical is accepted by a receptor outside of the cell and makes its way to the DNA inside the cell. Then a gene makes a new protein that's equal to that signal. So if the information coming from outside of the cell does not change, the gene keeps making the same protein and the body stays the same. Over time, the gene will begin to downregulate. It will either shut off its healthy expression of proteins, or it will eventually wear out, like making a copy of a copy of a copy, causing the body to express a different quality of proteins. Different classifications of stimuli upregulate and downregulate genes. We activate experience-dependent genes, for example, by doing new things or learning new information. These genes are responsible for stem cells getting the instructions to differentiate, transforming into whatever type of cell the body needs at that particular time to replace cells that are damaged. We activate behavioral state-dependent genes when we are in high levels of stress or arousal or in alternate states of awareness, like dreaming. You can think of these genes as the fulcrum of mind-body connection because they provide a link between our thoughts and our bodies, allowing us to influence our physical health through various behaviors, meditation, prayer, or social rituals, for example. When genes are altered in this way, sometimes within minutes, those altered genes can then be passed on to the next generation. So when you change your emotions, you can change the expression of your genes, turning some on and others off, because you are sending a new chemical signal to your DNA 
which can then instruct your genes to make different proteins, upregulating or downregulating to make all kinds of new building blocks that can change the structure and function of your body. For example, if your immune system has been subject to living in the emotions of stress for too long and has certain genes activated for inflammation and disease, you can turn on new genes for growth and repair and switch off the old genes responsible for disease. And at the same time, these epigenetically altered genes will begin to follow new instructions, making new proteins and programming the body for growth, repair and healing. This is how you can successfully recondition your body to a new mind. So as you read earlier in this chapter, this means that if you are living by the same emotions day in and day out, your body believes it's in the same environmental conditions. Then those feelings influence you to make the same choices, causing you to demonstrate the same habits that then create the same experiences that then produce the same emotions all over again. Thanks to these automatic, programmed habits, your cells are constantly being exposed to the same chemical environment outside your body and your environment as well as outside the cells but within your body. That chemistry keeps signaling the same genes in the same way and so you're stuck because when you stay the same your genetic expression stays the same. And now you are headed for a genetic destiny because you don't have any new information coming from the environment. But what if the circumstances in your life change for the better? Shouldn't that also change the chemical environment surrounding your cells? Yes, that happens, but not all the time. If you've spent years conditioning your body to this cycle of thinking and feeling, and then feeling and thinking without realizing it, you've also conditioned your body to become addicted to these emotions. So simply changing the external environment by, say, getting a new job doesn't necessarily break the addiction any more than someone addicted to drugs would be able to stop their cravings just by winning a lottery or moving to Hawaii. Because of the thinking-feeling loop, sooner or later, after the novelty of the experience is over, most people return to their baseline emotional state, and the body believes it's in the same old experience that created the same old emotions. So if you were miserable in your old job, but managed to get a new one, you might be happy for a few weeks, or even a few months. But if you had spent years conditioning your body to be addicted to misery, you would eventually return to that old emotion because your body would crave its chemical fix. Your outer environment may have changed, but your body will always believe its internal chemistry more than its external conditions. So it remains emotionally locked into your old state of being, still addicted to those old emotions. That's just another way of saying you're still living in the past. And because the internal chemistry hasn't changed, you can't change the expression of your genes to make new proteins in order to improve the structure or the function of your body, so there's no change in your health or your life. That's why I say you have to think greater than the way you feel to make any real lasting changes. In the winter of 2016, at our advanced workshop in Tacoma, Washington, my team and I performed a study on the effect elevated emotions had on immune function, taking saliva samples from 117 test subjects at the start of the workshop, and then again four days later at the workshop's conclusion. 
we measured immunoglobulin A, IgA, a protein marker for the strength of the immune system. IgA is an incredibly powerful chemical, one of the primary proteins responsible for healthy immune function and the internal defense system. It's constantly fighting a barrage of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other organisms that invade or are already living within the body's internal environment. It's so powerful that it's better than any flu shot or immune system booster you could possibly take. When it's activated, it's the primary internal defense system in the human body. When stress levels, and therefore the levels of stress hormones like cortisol, go up, this lowers levels of IgA, thereby compromising and down-regulating the immune system's expression of the gene that makes this protein. During our four-day workshop, we asked our study participants to move into an elevated emotional state such as love, joy, inspiration or gratitude for nine to ten minutes three times a day. If we could elevate our emotions, we wondered, could we boost our immune system? In other words, could our students upregulate the genes for IgA simply by changing their emotional states? The results amazed us. Average IgA levels shot up by 49.5%. The normal range for IgA is from 37 to 87 milligrams per deciliter, mg dl, but some people measured more than 100 mg dl at the end of the workshop. Our test subjects showed significant, measurable epigenetic changes without having any significant experiences in their external environment. By attaining states of elevated emotions even for just a few days, their bodies began to believe that they were in a new environment, so they were able to signal new genes and change their genetic expression, in this case the protein expression of the immune system. See figure 2.4. This means that you might not need a pharmacy or an exogenous substance to heal you. You have the power from within to upregulate the genes that make IgA within a few days. Something as simple as moving into an elevated state of joy, love, inspiration or gratitude for 5 to 10 minutes a day can produce significant epigenetic changes in your health and body. Where attention goes, energy flows. Since where you place your attention is where you place your energy, when you wake up in the morning and immediately start putting your attention and energy on all the people you have to see that day, the places you have to go, the objects you own and the things you have to do in the three-dimensional world, your energy becomes fractured. All of your creative energy is flowing away from you, as figure 2.5 illustrates to all things in the outer world that compete for your attention. Your cell phone, your laptop, your bank account, your house, your job, your co-workers, your spouse, your kids, your enemies, your pets, your medical conditions, and so on. Take a glance at figure 2.5. It is obvious that most people's attention and energy are directed to their outer material world. It begs the question, how much energy do you have left in your inner world of thoughts and feelings to create a new reality? Consider for a moment that each of these people or things you give so much attention to is a known in your life because you've experienced it. 
As I mentioned earlier in the chapter, you have a neurological network in your brain for each one of those things. Since they are mapped in your brain, you perceive and so experience them from your past. And the more you keep experiencing them, the more automatic and enriched the neural circuits for each of them become, because the redundancy of the various experiences keeps assembling and refining more and more circuits. That's what experience does. It enriches the brain. So you have a neurological network about your boss, a neurological network about money, a neurological network about your partner, a neurological network about your kids, a neurological network for your financial situation, a neurological network for your house, and neurological networks about all your physical world possessions because you've experienced all of those people or things at different times and places. When your attention and therefore your energy is divided between all these outer world objects, people, problems and issues, there's no energy left for you to put on your inner world of thoughts and feelings. So there's no energy left for you to use to create something new. Why? Because how you think and how you feel literally creates your personal reality. Therefore, if you are thinking and feeling equal to everything that you know, that's the known, you keep reaffirming the same life. In fact, we could say that your personality is no longer creating your personal reality. Now your personal reality is creating your personality. Your external environment is controlling your thoughts and feelings. There's a biological match between your inner world of thoughts and feelings and your outer world, past-present reality made of people and objects at certain times and places. You are continuously keeping your life the same because you are keeping your attention thoughts, and your energy, feelings, the same. Finally, if how you think and how you feel broadcasts an electromagnetic signature that influences every area of your life, you are broadcasting the same electromagnetic energy and your life never changes. We could say that your energy is equal to everything in your past-present reality, and you are recreating the past. That's not the only limitation that occurs, though. When you place all your attention and energy on the outer world and you keep reacting to the same conditions in the same way, in a state of chronic stress which causes the brain to be in a constant state of arousal, your inner world becomes imbalanced and your brain begins to work inefficiently. And then you become less effective in creating anything at all. In other words, you become a victim of your life instead of the creator of your life. Living by the hormones of stress. Now let's take a closer look at how we end up getting addicted to our negative emotions, or more precisely, what we call the hormones of stress. The moment we react to any condition in our outer world that tends to be threatening, whether the threat is real or imagined, our body releases stress hormones in order to mobilize enormous amounts of energy in response to that threat. When this occurs, the body moves out of balance. That's exactly what stress is. This is a natural and healthy response, because in antiquity, that chemical cocktail of adrenaline and cortisol and similar hormones were released when we were facing some danger in the outer world. Maybe a predator was chasing us, for example, and we had to make a decision to fight, run or hide. When we are in survival mode, we automatically become materialists, defining reality with our senses by what we can see, hear, smell, feel and taste. 
we also narrow our focus and put all of our attention on matter, on our bodies existing in a particular space and time. The hormones of stress cause us to give all of our attention to our outer world because that's where the danger lurks. Back in the days of early humans, of course, this response was a good thing. It was adaptive. It kept us alive. And once we had focused our attention on the cause, and then the danger had passed, the levels of all those stress hormones went back into balance. But in modern times, that's no longer the case. After just one phone call or email from our boss or a family member that elicits a strong emotional reaction such as anger, frustration, fear, anxiety, sadness, guilt, suffering or shame, we turn on the primitive fight-or-flight nervous system, causing us to react as if we were being chased by a predator. The same chemistry automatically stays switched on because the external threat never seems to go away. The truth is that many of us spend the majority of our time in this state of heightened arousal. It's become chronic. It's as though the predator is not out there in the wild making an occasional toothy appearance, but is instead living in the same cave as we are, a toxic co-worker whose desk is right next to ours, for example. Such a chronic stress response is not adaptive. It's maladaptive. When we're living in survival mode and those hormones of stress like adrenaline and cortisol keep pumping through our body, we stay on high alert instead of returning to balance. As in Anna's experience in Chapter 1, when this imbalance is maintained long-term, chances are we are headed for disease, because long-term stress downregulates the healthy expression of genes. In fact, our bodies become so conditioned to this rush of chemicals that they become addicted to them. Our bodies actually crave them. In this mode, our brains become overly alert and aroused as we try to predict, control and force outcomes in an effort to increase our chances of survival. And the more we do this, the stronger the addiction becomes, and the more we believe we are our bodies connected to our identities and our environment living in a linear time. That's because that's where all of our attention is. When your brain is aroused and you are living in survival mode, and you have to keep shifting your attention to your job, to the news, to your ex, to your friends, to your emails, to Facebook and to Twitter, you're activating each of these different neurological networks very quickly. Review figure 2.5 If you keep doing this over time, the act of habitually narrowing your focus and shifting your attention compartmentalizes your brain and it no longer works in a balanced fashion. And when that happens, you are training your brain to fire in a disordered, incoherent pattern which causes it to work very inefficiently. Like a lightning storm in the clouds, different neural networks fire out of order so your brain works out of sync. The effect is similar to a group of drummers all banging on their skins at the same time, but not together or with any rhythm. We will talk much more about the concepts of coherence and incoherence in a later chapter, but for now, it's enough to know that when your brain gets incoherent, you get incoherent. When your brain isn't working optimally, you're not working optimally. For each outer world person or thing or place you've experienced in your life that is a known, you have an emotion connected to it because emotions, which are energy and emotion, 
are the chemical residue of experience. And if most of the time you're living by those addictive stress hormones, you might use your boss to reaffirm your addiction to judgment. You might use your co-workers to reaffirm your addiction to competition. You might use your friends to reaffirm your addiction to suffering. You might use your enemies to reaffirm your addiction to hatred, your parents to reaffirm your addiction to guilt, your Facebook feed to reaffirm your addiction to insecurity, the news to reaffirm your addiction to anger, your ex to reaffirm your addiction to resentment, and your relationship with money to reaffirm your addiction to lack. This means your emotions, your energy, are commingled, even bonded with every person, place or thing you experience in your known familiar reality. And that means there's no energy available for you to create a new job, a new relationship, a new financial situation, a new life or even a newly healed body. Let me say it another way. If how you think and how you feel determines the frequency and information you are emitting in your energy field, which has a significant effect on your life, and if all of your attention, and so all of your energy, is tied up with your outer world of people, objects, things, places, and time, there's no energy left in your inner world of thoughts and feelings. Therefore, the stronger the emotion you are addicted to, the more you will place your attention on that person, object, place, or circumstance in your outer world, giving away most of your creative energy and causing you to feel and think equal to everything you know. It becomes difficult to think or feel in any new ways when you are addicted to your outer world. And it's possible that you can become addicted to all the people and things in your life that are causing you all the problems in the first place. That's how you give your power away and mismanage your energy. If you review figure 2.5, you'll find a few examples to illustrate how we create energetic bonds to all of the elements in our outer world. Take a look at figure 2.6. On the left side of the diagram, you see two atoms bound by an invisible field of energy. They're sharing information. It's energy that is bonding them together. On the right side of the diagram, you see two people who are sharing an experience of resentment and who are also bonded by an invisible field of energy that keeps them connected energetically. In truth, they are sharing the same energy and so the same information. To separate the two atoms, it takes energy. By the same means, if your attention and energy are bound to the same people, places and things in the outside physical world, you can understand that it's going to take energy and effort to break those bonds when you're in meditation. This begs the question, how much of your creative energy is tied up in guilt, hatred, resentment, lack or fear? The truth is, you could be using all that energy to recreate a new destiny. To do that, you're going to have to get beyond all those things in your outer world by taking your attention off them. That's why we use meditation as the model to change our internal state. This allows us to break from our associations to every body, every one, every thing, everywhere and every time, long enough to journey within. Once you overcome your emotional body and you take your attention off everything known to you in your outer world, you call your energy back to you, breaking the bonds with your past-present reality, which has been staying the same you're going to have to make the transition from being somebody to being nobody.
which means you have to take your attention off your body, your pain and your hunger. You're going to have to go from being someone to being no one, taking your attention off your identity as a partner, parent and employee. You'll have to go from keeping your attention on something to placing your attention on no thing, forgetting all about your cell phone, your emails and getting a cup of coffee. And from being somewhere to being nowhere, getting beyond any thoughts about the chair you're meditating in or where you'll be going later today, and from being in linear time to being in no time, with no distracting memories or thoughts about the future. I'm not saying that your cell phone or your laptop or your car or your bank account is bad, but when you're overly attached to those things and they've captured your attention to such a degree that you can't get beyond thinking about them because of the strong emotions you associate with them, those possessions own you, and then you can't create something new. The only way to do that is to learn to call all of that fractured energy back so you can overcome the emotions of survival that you have become addicted to and that keep all of your energy bound to your past-present reality. Once you take your attention off all those exterior elements, you start to weaken your energetic and emotional bonds with those things, and you finally begin to free up enough available energy to create a new future. That's going to require you to become aware of where you've been unconsciously placing your attention and like separating the two atoms, it's also going to take some energy to consciously break those bonds. People come up to me all the time in workshops and tell me their computer hard drive crashed or someone stole their car or they lost their job and they don't have any more money. When they tell me they have lost people or things in their life, you know what I always say to them? Great! Look how much available energy you now have to design a new destiny. By the way, if you do this work well and manage to call your energy back to you, it will most likely be uncomfortable at first, even a little chaotic. Get ready, because certain areas of your life may fall apart. But don't worry, that's supposed to happen because you're breaking the energetic bonds between yourself and your same past reality. Anything that is no longer in a vibrational match between you and your future is going to fall away. Let it. Don't try to put your old life back together because you're going to be way too busy with the new destiny you're calling to yourself. Here's a great example. A friend of mine who was vice president of a university showed up for a board meeting about three weeks after he started doing this meditation work. He was the backbone of that university. The students and faculty loved him. He walked into the board meeting and sat down, and they fired him. So he called me and he said, Hey, I don't know if this meditation process is working. The board just fired me. Aren't great things supposed to happen to me when I'm doing the work? Listen, I told him, don't you hold on to those emotions of survival, because then you'll be in your past. Instead, keep finding the present moment and creating from that place. Within two weeks, he fell in love with a woman he later married. He also soon received an offer for an even better job as vice president of a much larger and better university, which he gratefully accepted. A year later, he called me again to tell me that the college that fired him was now asking him to return as president. 
So, you never know what the universe has in store for you as your old reality falls away and your new one begins to unfold. The only thing I can assure you of is this. The unknown has never let me down. Calling your energy back If you're going to disconnect from the outer world, you have to learn how to change your brainwaves. So let's talk about brainwave frequencies for a moment. Most of the time that you're awake and conscious, you are in the beta range of brainwave frequencies. Beta is measured in low range, medium range and high range frequencies. Low range beta is a relaxed state when you don't perceive any threats from the outer world, but you are still aware of your body in space and time. This is the state you are in when you are reading, paying attention to your daughter during a friendly conversation or listening to a lecture. Mid-range beta is slightly more aroused state, such as when you are in a group of people, introducing yourself to everyone for the first time and you have to remember everyone's name. You're more vigilant, but you're not overly stressed or completely out of balance. Think of mid-range beta as good stress. High-range beta is the state you're in when you're jacked up on the hormones of stress. There are the brain waves you display when you exhibit any of the survival emotions, including anger, alarm, agitation, suffering, grief, anxiety, frustration, or even depression. High-range beta can be more than three times higher than low-range beta and twice as high as mid-range beta. While you may spend most of your waking time in beta frequency brainwaves, you also dip into alpha frequency brainwaves throughout your day. You display alpha brainwaves when you are relaxed, calm, creative, and even intuitive, when you're no longer thinking or analyzing, and instead you're daydreaming or imagining, like a trance state. If beta brainwaves indicate where you are placing the majority of your attention on your outer world, alpha brainwaves indicate when you are placing more of your attention on your inner world. Theta frequency brainwaves take over in the twilight stage when your mind is still awake, but your body is drifting off to sleep. This frequency is also associated with deep states of meditation. Delta frequency brainwaves usually come during deep, restorative sleep. However, over the last four years, my research team and I have recorded several students who can move into very deep delta brainwaves during meditation. Their bodies are deeply asleep, and they're not dreaming, but their brain scans show that their brains are processing very high amplitudes of energy. As a result, they report having profound mystical experiences of oneness, feeling connected to everyone and everything in the universe. See figure 2.7 to compare the different brainwave states. Gamma frequency brainwaves indicate what I call a superconscious state. This high-frequency energy occurs when the brain gets aroused from an internal event. One of the most common examples is during meditation when your eyes are closed and you are going within, instead of an event that happens outside the body. We'll talk more about gamma brainwaves in later chapters. One of the biggest challenges people have when they meditate is switching out of high-range and even mid-range beta and slipping into alpha and then theta brainwave frequencies. It's absolutely vital to do so, though, because when they slow down their brainwaves to these other frequencies, they are no longer paying attention to the outer world and all the distractions they're so used to thinking about when they're under stress. And since they're not analyzing and strategizing, 
trying to prepare for the worst-case scenario in their future based on their fearful memories of the past, they have the opportunity to become present, to exist only in the now. Wouldn't it be wonderful during a meditation to disconnect your association to all the elements in your outer environment, to get beyond your body, your fears and your schedule, and forget about your familiar past and your predictable future? If you do it right, you will even lose track of time. As you overcome your automatic thinking, your emotions and your habits in meditation, that is exactly what happens. You get beyond your body, your environment and time. You weaken the energetic bonds with your past-present reality and find yourself in the present moment. Only in the present moment can you call your energy back to you. This does take some effort, although it will get easier with practice because you're living by the hormones of stress most of the time. So let's look at what happens when you aren't in the present moment during meditation so you'll know how to handle that when it arises. Understanding this skill is important because if you can't get beyond your stresses, your problems and your pain, you can't create a new future where those things don't exist. So let's say you're sitting in your meditation and you start to have some stray thoughts. You're in the habit of thinking that way because you've been thinking the same way and putting your attention on the same people and things at the same time and place for years now. And you have been automatically embracing the same familiar feelings on a daily basis just to reaffirm the same personality that's connected to your same personal reality, repeatedly conditioning your body into the past. The only difference now is that because you're trying to meditate, your eyes are shut. As you are sitting there with your eyes closed, you are not physically seeing your boss. But your body wants to feel that anger because every time you see her in your waking day, 50 times a day, 5 days a week, you are in the habit of feeling bitterness or aggression. Similarly, when you get emails from her, which happen at least 10 times a day, you unconsciously have the same emotional reaction to her. So your body has grown accustomed to needing her to reaffirm your addiction to anger. It wants to feel the emotions it has become addicted to, and like an addict craving a drug, the body is craving the familiar chemicals. It wants to feel that familiar anger at your boss because you didn't get the promotion, or it wants to feel judgment about your co-worker who always wants you to cover for him. Then you start thinking about other colleagues who annoy you and other reasons to be upset with your boss. You're sitting there trying to meditate, but your body is throwing the kitchen sink at you. That's because it wants its chemical fix or familiar emotions that you normally feel throughout the waking day with your eyes open. The instant you notice what's happening, that you are putting all of your attention on that emotion, you become aware that you're investing your energy into the past, because emotions are records of the past. So you stop and return to the present moment and you begin to disinvest your attention and energy out of the past. And then, in a little while, you start to feel frustrated and angry and resentful again, and you realize what you are doing. You remember that your body is trying to feel those emotions in order to reaffirm its addiction to those chemicals. And you remember that those emotions drive your brain into high-range beta brainwaves. And you stop. Every time you pause, settle your body down, and return to the present moment, you are telling your body that it is no longer the mind. You are the mind. 
But then thoughts start drifting into your mind about the people you have to see and the places you have to go and the things you have to do later that day. You wonder if your boss has answered that email yet, and you remember that you haven't returned your sister's phone call either. And today is trash day, so you remind yourself you need to put out the trash. And all of a sudden you become aware that by anticipating those future scenarios, you are investing your attention and your energy into the same known reality. So you stop, return to the present moment, and once more disinvest your energy out of that predictable, known future and make room for the unknown in your life. Take a look at figure 2.8. It shows that once you find yourself in that sweet spot of the generous present moment, your energy, represented by the arrows, no longer goes away from you to the past and future the way it did back in figure 2.3. Now you are divesting your energy from that familiar past and predictable future. You are no longer firing and wiring the same circuits in the same way, and you are no longer regulating and signaling the same genes in the same way by feeling the same emotions. If you keep doing this process, you are continuously calling all that energy back to you by breaking the energetic bonds that keep you connected to your past-present reality. This happens because you are taking your attention and your energy off your outer world and placing it instead on your inner world, and you're building your own electromagnetic field surrounding your body. Now you have available energy that you can use to create something new. Not surprisingly, your attention eventually begins to wander again. As you continue to sit in meditation, your body becomes more annoyed and impatient because it wants to do something. After all, you've programmed it every day to get up and follow the same routine. It wants to quit meditating, open its eyes and see someone. It wants to hear something on TV or talk to someone on the phone. It prefers to taste breakfast instead of sitting there doing nothing. It would like to smell coffee brewing, like it does every morning, and it would love to feel something like a hot shower before it starts the day. The body wants to experience physical reality with its senses in order to embrace an emotion, but your goal is to create a reality from a world beyond your senses that's defined not by your body as the mind, but by you as the mind. So as you become aware of the program, you keep settling your body down into the present moment. The body tries again to return to the familiar past because it wants to engage in a predictable future, but you keep settling it back down. Each time you overcome those automatic habits, your will becomes greater than your program. Every time you keep settling your body back to the present moment, like training a dog to sit, you are reconditioning your body to a new mind. Each time you become aware of your program and you labor for the present moment, you are stating that your will is greater than your program. And if you keep returning your attention, and therefore your energy, back to the present moment, and you keep noticing when you are present and when you are not, sooner or later your body is going to surrender. It is this process of continuously returning to the present moment every time you become aware that you've lost it, that begins to break the energetic bonds with your familiar known reality. And when you do return to the present moment, what you're actually doing is getting beyond your physical world identity and unfolding into the quantum field, a concept I will explain in detail in the next chapter. The hardest part of every war is the last battle. That means that when your body, as the mind, is raging, 
causing you to think that you cannot go any further, wanting you to stop and return to the world of the senses. You keep persevering. You truly step into the unknown, and sooner or later you will begin to break the emotional addiction within you. When you get beyond your guilt, your suffering, your fear, your frustration, your resentment or your unworthiness, you are freeing your body from the chains of those habits and emotions that keep you anchored in the past. And as a result, you are liberating energy that is now coming back to you. As the body releases all of this stored emotional energy, it is no longer becoming the mind. You discover that right on the other side of your fear is courage. Right on the other side of your lack is wholeness. And just beyond your doubt is knowing. When you step into the unknown and surrender your anger or hatred, you discover love and compassion. It's the same energy. It has just been stored in the body and now it's available for you to use to design a new destiny. So when you learn to overcome yourself, or the memory of yourself and your life, you break the bonds you have with everything, every person, every place and every time that's keeping you connected to your past-present reality. And when you finally overcome your anger or your frustration and you liberate energy that was trapped in the past, you call that energy back to you. As you liberate all of that creative energy that has been tied up in those survival emotions, within you and all around you, you are building your own personal energy field around your body. In our advanced workshops, we've actually measured this effect on calling the energy back. We have experts who use very sensitive equipment called a gas discharge visualization, GDV, machine, with a specially designed sensor called a Sputnik antenna, developed by Konstantin Korotkov, PhD. It measures the ambient electromagnetic field in the workshop conference spaces to see how the energy changes as the workshop progresses. On the first full day of some of our advanced workshops, we sometimes see the energy in the room drop. That happens because once we start meditating and those students have to overcome themselves by breaking the energetic bonds with everyone and everything in their known reality, they are calling energy back to themselves. They're drawing energy from the greater field and the field in the room can diminish as the participants begin to build their individual field of energy around their own bodies and now they have available energy to use to design a new destiny. Of course, as our entire group gets beyond themselves the first day, they finally build their own light field, and as their energy keeps expanding each day, they begin to contribute to the energy in the room. As a result, we finally witness the energy of the room rise. To see what this sometimes looks like, find graphics 1A and 1B in the color insert. One way to increase your chances of a successful meditation is to give yourself enough time so you don't get distracted by trying to rush through the experience. When I meditate, for example, I allow for two hours. I don't have to take two hours every time, but I know myself well enough by now to realize that if I have only one hour, I'm going to tell myself there's not enough time. If I have two hours, on the other hand, I can relax knowing I have plenty of time to find the present moment. Some days I find the sweet spot of the present moment pretty quickly, while on other days I have to work for an hour at bringing my brain and body back into the present. I'm a very busy person. Some days when I have just arrived home for three days between workshops or events, 
I wake up in the morning and immediately think of the three meetings I have planned that day with different staff members, mentally rehearsing what I have to talk about. Then I think about the emails I have to get done before I go to those meetings. Then I think about the flight I have to catch that afternoon. Then I make a mental note about the phone calls I have to make on the drive to the airport. You get the idea. As that happens and I'm thinking about the same people I have to see, the same places I have to go, the same things I have to do, all at the same time in my known familiar reality, I realize that I am priming my brain and body to look like that future has already happened. I become conscious that my attention is in the known future, and I stop anticipating the known and turn back to the present moment. As I do that, I'm beginning to unfire and unwire those neural connections. Then I might get a little emotional and become impatient and a little frustrated thinking about something that happened yesterday. And since emotions are a record of the past and where I place my attention is where I place my energy, I become aware that I'm investing my energy in the past. Then the hormones of stress may get my brain aroused and my body gets a bit fired up into high-range beta brainwaves and I have to settle it back down into the present moment again. And as I do that, I'm no longer firing and wiring the same circuits in my brain and I'm disinvesting my energy out of the past. And if I'm aware of the same thoughts that are connected to those same familiar feelings, when I stop myself from feeling the same way, I'm no longer conditioning my body into the past and I'm no longer signaling the same genes in the same ways. And if the emotions are the end products of experiences in the environment, and if it's the environment that signals the gene, then when I stop feeling those same emotions, I'm no longer selecting and instructing the same genes in the same ways. That not only affects the health of my body, but also no longer primes my body to be in the same future based on living in the past. So as I inhibit those familiar feelings, I'm changing the genetic program of my body. And since the hormones of long-term stress downregulate the expression of healthy genes and create disease, every time I am able to stop when I catch myself feeling any of those emotions that are related to stress, I am no longer conditioning my body to stay addicted to the emotions of stress. If I do it properly, overcoming my familiar thoughts and emotions of my known past and future, then energetically, neurologically, biologically, chemically, hormonally, and genetically, that predictable future, as well as the familiar past I used to affirm it, no longer exists. If I am no longer firing and no longer wiring those same old neural networks, by no longer thinking about those memories of the people or things at certain times and places, and I keep returning to the present moment, I am calling energy back to me. Take a look at figure 2.9 and you can see how the familiar past and the predictable future no longer exist. Now I'm in the sweet spot of the generous present moment, and I have available energy to create. I've built my own energy field surrounding my body. Every time I've labored, sometimes for hours, to get beyond myself and find that place called the eternal now, and I truly break through, I've always thought the same thing. That was so worth it.